A uh, 24-year-old woman uh, presents with progressive dyspnea on exertion for the last three days. She has uh, hemoglobin SS, sickle cell disease, and has about one pain crisis per year. She has a low-grade fever, uh, bilateral small joint pains for about a week. Uh, she has no rash, cough, or chest pain. On physical exam, she's febrile to 101.3, Heart rate is 120, respiration is 22, and her blood pressure is 100 over 68. She's alert and slightly short of breath even at rest. Her conjunctiva are pale. Lungs are clear. There's a 2 over 6 systolic ejection murmur over the pulmonic area. Abdomen is benign. Uh, no hepatosplenomegaly. Fingers, wrists, and ankles have pain with reins of motion, but no visible uh, swelling at all. Uh, her hemoglobin, which usually runs about 7 to 8, is 4.2. Uh, MCV is 84, and she's not reticking at all. Uh, white count is 4.8, 75% neutrophils, 12% limbs, 5% monos. Platelets are borderline low. A uh, bone marrow aspiration was done by our hematology colleagues. The white cell and the platelet uh, cell line were uh, normal, uh, but uh, there was red cell arrest uh, in this um, uh, interesting cell, which you may or may not recognize, was seen on the uh, bone marrow aspirate. Chest x-ray is completely normal. So that's her. What other testing would you do uh, on this individual? A bone marrow culture, chest CT, Borrelia serologies, fungal serologies, or a pregnancy test? <clears throat> okay, about half want the pregnancy test, and that's correct. Uh, the uh, quarter of you or third of you want a bone marrow culture. You're correctly pursuing a little more what the etiology of this problem is. Uh, which uh, is, is, sounds like the majority of you have figured out that this is a parvovirus infection in a, in a uh, uh, host that doesn't deal with it very well, and we'll, deal, we'll talk about the three hosts that don't. Um, it, you can try to culture parvovirus B19, but that giant pronormoblast, which is what that uh, cell was, uh, is diagnostic because that's the cell that uh, the parvovirus likes to infect in the red cell line and it causes maturation arrest uh, at, at that point. So really trying to culture the organism wouldn't be necessary. Parvovirus B19 is one of several infections that are not good in the first trimester. So we always want to make sure in a female patient, regardless of the sexual history, uh, if they are able to conceive, that we t check uh, for a pregnancy test. Uh, so it is parvovirus B19. The correct answer would be a pregnancy test. So now let's get back. Her pregnancy test was negative. Let's get back to this patient. Uh, she's a hemoglobin of 4.2 so in, and shortness of breath at rest, so we transfused her. In addition to those packed red cell transfusions, what else would you give her? Uh, IV immunoglobulin, acyclovir, gancyclovir, ribavirin, or nothing? <clears throat> Okay, the slight majority of you said nothing, which is the correct answer. And I understand why the second most chosen answer was A, because we'll talk about the hosts that do deserve IV immunoglobulin 
she's just not one of them. So you're remembering something correctly about how to treat parvovirus in a certain susceptible host. So let's walk, walk through those. I just want to show you a rash. She didn't have one, uh, but this is the, uh, uh, the lacy kind of a rash uh, that can occur in parvovirus infections in adults. About a third or 50% can have them uh, yeah, yeah, as another uh, tip-off to what's going on. All right, so here's the, here's the parvovirus B19 troublesome host. Most of us in this room have had parvo, parvovirus B19. You may not have even realized it. You get it we usually get it as a child. Uh, and there's only three hosts that have any difficulty with it. Otherwise, it's a self-limited infection, seven days, 10 days. It does infect our red cell line, but we, our red cells live 100, it, 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 with healthy red cell maturation and healthy red cells, they live 120 days. So if you stop synthesis of them for 10 days, your hemoglobin drops 1 12th, you wouldn't know it. You go from, from 17 down to 16. You, you wouldn't feel any different. Uh, you might have the joint aches and the rash from the, from the virus. So there's no effect in normal hosts. There's no really effect uh, of the viral infection. However, uh, in pregnant women, although the woman, them, the woman herself may not have any noticeable effect, uh, it does have an effect on increasing fetal loss and causing hydrops fetalis. So that's why, again, we check all women who, who are, uh, are able to conceive just make sure they're not pregnant so we can advise them appropriately and do appropriate ultrasounds. The two hosts that don't do well, this is the, this is the host we worry about the, the, uh, the, uh, the fetus in. The two hosts that don't do well, she's one of them. People with hemoglobinopathies, her red cells uh, have a, a live for 30 days. She has hemoglobin SS. So if you shut down that factory for 10 days, her hemoglobin is going to drop like it did from 9 down to 4. And that will cause a symptomatic, a space symptomatic anemia in anybody. Uh, so they run into problems, but her immune system is fine uh, with respect to fighting off this virus. She will get over it in 7 to 10 days, just like a non-sickle cell patient would. Therefore, all you have to do is support her with transfusions during the period of time, and she will clear the virus herself. And there's only one parvovirus, B19. So once we have it, we're immune for life. So she, we just have to support her, which is what we did, with transfusions, and she will be fine. And it was nice that she got this virus when she was not pregnant. And now she cannot worry, doesn't have to worry about this if she has future pregnancies. The, the hosts that, uh, some of you answered IV immunoglobulin, the host that deserves IV immunoglobulin is this one. It's the immunosuppressed patient. Let's take an HIV-infected patient. Unable to mount cell-mediated immunity against this parvovirus. In him or her, the virus won't just go away in 7 to 10 days. It'll stay for weeks and weeks and cause a chronic suppression of the red cell maturation line. So we need to help their immune system. So we take pooled IV immunoglobulin from healthy people like you. And in that, because most of us have had parvovirus B19, there's enough IgG antibody to parvovirus B19 that will help eradicate the infection from that person and get it to go away and allow their red cells to come back. Because it, we gave them passive immunity, they are susceptible to another parvovirus infection later on. They don't have any native immunity to it. So they can get reinfected. Uh, and several of them uh, do because the virus is so prevalent. So the immunosuppressed people, 
deserve the IV immunoglobulin. If they're not immunosuppressed, not that sickle cell patients don't have asplenia, which is an immunosuppressive state, but if they're not immunosuppressed with, with respect to cell-mediated immunity, just support them with transfusions, and they will clear the virus themselves. So that's a parvovirus in a single patient. Okay, 35. A 27-year-old man presents with fever and severe headache and myalgias for one day. He's a medical student who returned four days ago from a trip to the Dominican Republic uh, <clears throat> as part of our school's international medicine program. We send a bunch of residents every year to the DR to do research and public health stuff. He took mefloquine for malaria prophylaxis. Uh, on physical examination, uh, his temperature is 103, heart rate is 90, respiration is 20, blood pressure is 90 over 68. And he was a young, healthy medical student, so I'm not, we weren't sure whether this was his normal blood pressure or not. Alert, he was in pain from his head and terrible muscle aches, but a really bad headache. Lungs and heart and abdomen were uh, benign. And here's his leg, which I hope shows up well. Yeah, it does. Uh, here's his leg. He was, uh, as part of his mosquito precautions, uh, he was wearing very high uh, socks, uh, even though it was pretty hot down there. Uh, and here's the border of where his sock and, and the skin uh, met, where the tight uh, band at the top of the sock was. So he had this fine uh, petechial rash. You just have to trust me, these don't, didn't blanch when we pushed on him. Uh, and this didn't blanch at all either. <clears throat> Hemoglobin was 16, which we assumed was his normal. White count was low uh, and uh, predominantly neutrophils. Platelet count was really low, 28,000. He had no past medical history of anything. Creatinine was up 2.4. Transaminase is about two times normal. Uh, Alkphos and bilirubin were normal. And his urine had eight red cells, which, uh, as you all know, is not uh, normal. So that's him. Uh, what test is likely to confirm your diagnosis in this gentleman? Uh, skin biopsy for rickettsial fluorescent antibody, smear for malaria, blood culture for bacteria, blood culture for viral, or blood for uh, viral serology. Very good, blood for viral serology, and it, it looks like most of you are recognizing this uh, animal in the zoo uh, as um, uh, dengue fever. Uh, dengue, and it looks like I keep showing you the same geographic maps, but that's because <clears throat> the tropical illnesses uh, occur in the tropics. And we, when we looked at malaria, this was a similar map. Um, so in uh, most of Mexico and Central America, but definitely in the Caribbean, uh, dengue is endemic, as it is in northern South America and sub-Saharan Africa, except for the tip of South America, uh, sorry, Africa. Uh, and uh, in uh, Asia, in India, Pakistan, and uh, Southeast Asia, it's endemic. Uh, we see most of our cases from the Caribbean and Mexico uh, up in uh, Chicago. Uh, and uh, just to go through it very quickly and then talk about <clears throat> uh, uh, prevention. Um, the epidemiology and pathogenesis, it's the most common mosquito-borne uh, viral disease. Uh, it, and the, one of the clues to it, and there's several infectious diseases that have terrible headaches, and this is one of them. 
Severe headache, the virus inf uh, infects and inflames the endothelial cells and the capillaries. So every capillary, well not every, but a, a lot of capillaries are in the meninges, not the brain, the brain feels no pain, but the meninges are inflamed and so there's a tremendous headache and often uh, sometimes a stiff neck. Muscle and joint pains, uh, the, the, it's often it, one of the nicknames for this is break bone fever. It, it, the muscle and bone pain is incredibly painful uh, because of the inflammation of the vasculature. Uh, if your platelet count gets low enough, and it does in about a fifth of patients, uh, it now becomes hemorrhagic fever, where there's bleeding not only in the skin, but there can be in internal organs and in the GI tract uh, and in the nose. Uh, it is self-limited, which is good, because we still don't have any antiviral for this. I should have mentioned that we don't have an antiviral for parvovirus B19 either. No, no treatment has ever been shown to be effective. In full-blown dengue hemorrhagic fever, it's the capillary leak syndrome where there's multiple uh, uh, leaking throughout ARDS uh, and uh, end organ uh, in, uh, injury. There's a PCR, but it's not uh, universally available. The CDC can do it and does do it when it's investigating uh, outbreaks of dengue in the United States. But we have, to, we have to rely on serology for this. But to be honest with you, in endemic countries, the diagnosis is made clinically. Uh, with the, the pain, the petechia, uh, the CBCs are available, and you can pretty much make the diagnosis uh, by, on your, by yourself. There's no, uh, there's no uh, specific antiviral supportive treatment, and like in any patient with a platelet count less than 10,000, we would uh, transfuse them. Um, I, I'm probably not going to bring this up next year at this course, but uh, for the last couple of years, Ebola was a big deal, and we were still worried about it. There was another little blush of it, uh, in uh, Africa, but I don't think we're going to see uh, that handful of cases that were brought back to the United States like we did before. So I'm not going to talk about this uh, hemorrhagic fever, but uh, this has replaced it. And one of the certainties in infectious diseases is there's always going to be something new. Uh, and uh, Zika's been around now for a couple of years, and so I think it might be testable. Um, it's also spread by the 80s uh, uh, mosquito. Uh, and here is the uh, fairly current. There's a, a little bit of an uh, increase in the Caribbean that's not re represented on this map, uh, location of it. Uh, so it's in the Western Hemisphere, and it's uh, definitely in Mexico and Central America and Northern South America. Um, like West Nile virus, if you can draw analogies, 80% uh, of people don't know they got it, which with West Nile virus is fine. But because of the effects on uh, uh, fetus, uh, fetuses, uh, it's not fine to be a pregnant woman and not know that you got this virus and, be, uh, and then have a malformed uh, baby. So this has the extra catch of, have, of truly causing fetal uh, abnormalities. The incubation period is from 2 to 12 days. Uh, it's usually in the 20% of people who are symptomatic, a very mild disease, very rarely uh, hemorrhagic fever. Uh, with low fever, uh, maybe a maculopapular rash. This was a gentleman that had uh, 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 Zika. Uh, there might be a little non-purulent conjunctivitis, but you know, there really are no cases of, of petechia and, uh, and hemorrhage into organs, etc. Although it was controversial for a while, there clearly is a link to fetal, fetal microcephaly, the, the children have uh, calcifications in their brain. They've only been followed for a few years, but there, there's clearly a developmental delay in these, uh, in these children. Uh, 
So just to uh, uh, give you the best I can from the CD uh, that's been brought to me from the CDC, uh, it, it appears that the, the RNA of this virus is present in the semen for up to six months. Uh, and so people, couples that are trying to conceive, first of all, the recommendation of the CDC is just don't, don't travel, no unnecessary travel to these areas. If your business mandates that you go there, if you're the ambassador to Mexico, uh, then, then you have to consider changing jobs, perhaps. Uh, but, but if you're trying to pick a place to travel to, and there are many beautiful places to travel to here, maybe pick some other place if you're planning on conceiving uh, in the near future. Uh, and then their, uh, their uh, conception should be avoided for up to three to six months, and they're still not sure uh, how far out that needs, to, uh, that needs to go. But there doesn't appear to be a chronic viremia, a chronic silent viremia from this virus. So people that traveled there a year ago and now they're deciding to start their family, there really shouldn't be any concern. There is serology you can get to show that you're already immune to it and have been infected, uh, but that's not routinely recommended. So that's Zika. All right, moving on. 33-year-old man presents to your office in December. Four-day history of onset of fever and cough. He denies shortness of breath uh, or pleuritic chest pain. He is an otherwise healthy math teacher, and he's at a local high school, and he tells you uh, influenza A has been diagnosed in three of his students, and he's a math teacher, so I trusted there were exactly three students in his class that had it. Uh, a physical exam, and actually part of the reason he came was he was told by his uh, school system, you got, dude, you got to go check, get checked out because there's a little bit of an outbreak here. Physical exam, temperature is 101.5, uh, uh, pulse rate was 106, respiration is 20. He's alert and oriented, his lung exam was fine. Uh, and so he just, he had a fever and a cough, but he wasn't short, short of breath. <clears throat> Hemoglobin was 15, white count was fine, platelets were fine, and his chest x-ray was completely normal. <clears throat> what would you do now? Uh, nasopharyngeal swab for uh, rapid antigen testing for influenza, assuming this is available, and you can for the sake of this question in your office. Nasopharyngeal swab for PCR testing for influenza. Uh, no testing, just treat him with oseltamivir. You probably can make the diagnosis he's got influenza already, or, or neither test nor treat with oseltamivir, Tamiflu. <clears throat> Good, the majority of you don't want to test or treat, and let's walk through why that's the best uh, answer, because there's a a uh, little bit of a splay in the other answers, but pretty equal, actually. Uh, so epidemic influenza, uh, we're not in the influenza season right now. Um, <clears throat> but as you know, the, uh, the winter months in North America are when influenza hits and when we want to uh, vaccinate our patients prior to that, usually in September or October. Uh, it's extremely uh, contagious. And the clinical manifestations are a fever and cough, and actually, you as a clinician, if, you, if there is an influenza outbreak going on, and we're always updated by the CDC, okay, it's here, this year's flu is here, and here's the serotype of it. If, there, if influenza is in your community, and someone comes in with a fever and cough, that has an 80% positive predictive value they have influenza. 
So you as a good doctor are allowed to diagnose influenza just based on that. 80% is pretty good. It, and actually the immunoassay testing that we used to do on secretions, and you may still do at some institutions, is only 60% sensitive. So, so your clinical acumen is better than a test you could order. The PCR is better than us. Uh, it's 90% sensitive and specific. So it would have a higher positive predictive value. Okay? Here's what the CDC says. <clears throat> that we should even test, because uh, we, we don't need to test everybody because the clinical presentation is fairly diagnostic. If they're immunocompetent, immuno him, a healthy math teacher just got the flu, but they're at risk for severe disease, and I'll define that in a moment, but you know in your head where I'm going to go with that, comorbid illnesses, immunocompromised, things like that, then we want to test because we would potentially treat those people uh, because of their immunocom uh, because of their uh, risk for severe disease, they have underlying COPD and they get influenza pneumonia. Those people are the ones that can die. <clears throat> All immunocompromised people should be tested because we're, pr we're probably going to treat them. And hospitalized patients with an acute febrile respiratory disease, if they're in the hospital with a, during influenza season, and you, meaning you needed to hospitalize them because they were sick enough that needed to come in, they were hypoxemic or whatever. Uh, we want to test them for two reasons. One, we might want to treat them. Second is, we want to know whether we should keep them in isolation. We put them in isolation empirically during the flu season, but we want to know if we should keep them in there, because isolation costs money for the hospital. Uh, you, you know this, the gowns and the gloves and the masks and everything, that costs money. They all get thrown out and they have to be replenished, uh, so it costs a lot of money for healthcare. All right. <clears throat> Here's the, uh, here's the people that we would, once we test them, and the reason we do test them is we're considering treating them. I already talked about this one. We would test hospitalized patients. We test people with severe disease, meaning lower respiratory tract disease, meaning you listen to their lungs and you say, you know, I hear crack or I hear consolidation, which is uncommon with influenza pneumonia, or they clearly on x-ray have bilateral uh, infiltrates consistent with a bilateral uh, viral pneumonia. At risk for severe disease, looks like a long la laundry list, but you would guess most of these. And just remember that certain populations, our Native American population and Alaskan population, are genetically predisposed to severe disease. And obese patients are uh, uh, prone to uh, severe disease. These are the ones that most people can't remember just empirically. How do we treat? We treat now with neuraminidase inhibitors. If you still remember amantadine and rimantadine, forget them. They were great when they came out, and actually the, the, the guy that trained me at the University of Illinois was the one who uh, named uh, amantadine. If you remember its structure, it's this big cyclic uh, solid thing. He, wa he wanted to call it adamantadine because it was adamant. It couldn't be destroyed. Uh, but nobody could say that, so it, so it became amantadine. But th that was great. But now, uh, uh, the neuraminidase inhibitors are the treatment, so n never answer on the test uh, those drugs. And oseltamivir is almost always the answer. Uh, Zanamivir is great, and it works the same way, but it's an inhaler, and you know that it's hard sometimes to, for us to get patients to use inhalers correctly. They spray it in the wrong way or whatever. So if they can take something oral, just give them uh, oseltamivir. The trick is, and the, one of the reasons in this patient that uh, we didn't offer treatment, 
that just like in other viral diseases like herpes simplex, you got to catch them early enough, within 72 hours. For uh, Oseltamivir to work, you got to catch them in 48 hours. There's very little evidence uh, that after 48 hours you do them any good. The drug has very few side effects, but if it doesn't do any good, we shouldn't be giving it. And then prevention. Um, <clears throat> up until 2012, this was a <clears throat> excuse me, very complicated slide about who to give the influenza vaccine to. And then they, the CDC made it easy. Everybody, every single year, should get the influenza vaccine uh, starting at six months of age. I don't do peds, but uh, starting at six months of age. Uh, and only use the inactivated vaccine. Uh, unfortunately, the live vaccine, which we thought was going to be great, you just uh, sniff it. People don't like needles. You just have to insufflate it. It doesn't work. They, they realized about a year ago it had a horrible efficacy, about 40% efficacy. So we have to stick needles in people uh, to make this happen. And then there is a high-dose vaccine, and I put a question mark here, so don't worry about it for the boards but you're inquisitive physicians who are taking care of people, and I want you to be aware of things. Uh, there, is a, uh, uh, there might be a recommendation that with the regular dose vaccine, uh, you can get more bang for your buck if you, give, uh, if you give a high dose vaccine to elderly people over 65, more uh, uh, antibody rise, whether it clinically correlates is not clear. And then there's some interference with statins, and now that everybody is on a statin, there's some interference with statins when the, with the efficacy of the low-dose vaccine. So there might be a recommendation to give the high-dose vaccine. Not going to be on your boards this year, but, uh, but that'll probably be settled in the next six months. Uh, this is just some studies. I'll go through them quickly. It's just to emphasize that uh, treating within the first 48 hours is important. And these two studies were two meta-analyses by the same woman who published in two different journals. So it's kind of interesting, but she had different criteria for each one. Um, <clears throat> But basically, here's the odds ratio, early defined as 48 hours, uh, early treatment with a neuraminidase inhibitor versus late treatment. Uh, the odds ratio for uh, mortality, uh, there was a 62% decrease in mortality if you treat early versus late. Uh, and in this study, uh, a pretty uh, similar decrease, about 50%. So it's not just people feel better, people stay alive more if you treat within 48 hours. 37, 28-year-old <clears throat> woman comes to you because she has been found to be HIV positive last week. Uh, she has been a sex worker for eight years and has never been tested before. Uh, she has unintentionally lost 15 pounds over the last two years and currently weighs 100 pounds. So obviously we're worried that she's had chronic HIV. Her physical exam, other than the uh, apparent weight loss, was normal, and her exam was completely normal. She has an anemia, normocytic, normochromic anemia, 9.1. White count is low and a severe lymphocytopenia, if you do the math. Uh, platelet count was, uh, was okay. And her CD4 count, which is not a surprise, uh, was 40, was 38. Uh, we tested her for uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis with uh, IGRA. Uh, it was negative, and her chest X-ray was normal. Uh, and we're going to dip into the treatment of HIV, and I, I, I know that on the internal medicine boards, they're not going to ask you complicated management of people with HIV infection that have failed this drug or have a side effect to this drug, but they do want us to know how to do primary care HIV, meaning uh, how to give uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, and initiate 
therapy for HIV. So that's all I want to get across to you with this patient. So if genotypic sensitivity testing permits, and one teaching point I want to make sure you all know is in the year 2017, we test everybody. We do a genotypic assay on everybody. We can no longer assume that a newly infected person has the wild-type virus that is susceptible to everything. That went away about seven years ago. If genotypic sensitivity testing permits, which antiretroviral therapy would you start? So if, if you know what the acceptable initial regimens are. Three nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, NRTIs. Two of those, plus an integrase inhibitor. An NRTI, a uh, ritonavir-boosted uh, protease inhibitor, or a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. Or uh, NRTI, an RPI, and an integrase inhibitor. Sorry for all the abbreviations for the antiretrovirals. <clears throat> Uh, very good. B is the correct answer. That's wonderful. So uh, let's talk about uh, why that's the correct answer. Uh, and then I'm going to explode this into HIV uh, management a little bit. Uh, again, this isn't the infectious disease boards. Uh, and soon there's going to be AIDS boards So as a subspecialty uh, of infectious disease. Treatment of HIV infection. This used to be, and, and I'm old enough to remember, we used to, and, and there's some folks here that have been docs for decades also, we used to look at the CD4 count and say, well, I don't know, if it's still above 500, maybe we'll, oh, 350, maybe we should. Now we treat everybody. It's real easy now. We treat everybody. Part of this is because the medications we have are so safe and have so little side effects, and there's once-a-day dosing for most of the major drugs that we use. So compliance is not a big issue. We used to worry about treating people too early, and they would be noncompliant, and they would develop a resistant virus because they would take the drugs and stop and take the drugs and stop. All those worries are gone. And <clears throat> there's good data <clears throat> excuse me, that the earlier we treat, the less opportunistic infections they, uh, they will get. Yeah, and now, in patients with susceptible virus who uh, take their medications, and I never thought I would say this when I was a fellow and HIV first hit in Chicago, they have a normal lifespan. Normal lifespan. A disease, when I was a fellow, had a nine-month median survival. I was a fellow before Zidovudine. Yeah, yeah, and now, normal lifespan. So incredible research that has been done, and in, in, in the pharma industry has done great stuff. Okay, so we treat everyone. As soon as we make the diagnosis, we treat everyone. We genotype the virus in everyone before we treat to make sure we can treat uh, uh, appropriately. And when we make the diagnosis, they've had it for eight years, so you can wait for the genotypic assay to come back in a couple of days uh, before you start treating. And here's the, <clears throat> the two uh, appropriate uh, initial therapies if the genotypic assay allows you to do so. The backbone is always two uh, NRTIs, so that's uh, easy to remember. Uh, and M-tricytabine and tenofovir are the common ones because they come in a combination pill, and they're once a day. So it's very, very convenient. And then the other choice is just an integrase inhibitor or a protease inhibitor uh, boosted by ritonavir. Ritonavir uh, inhibits the um, uh, metabolism of the other protease inhibitor, the P450 metabolism. So those are the two initial regimens, two NRTIs, and you pick between an integrase inhibitor and a protease inhibitor. They won't ask you to pick between those two because they're both equally effective. 
This is just a list, not for your memorization, but just a list of the current um, uh, drugs. And it's been an explosion. No other infection has, has stimulated the world, and definitely U.S. pharma, to create new drugs. These are just the NRTIs, the NRTIs. Uh, there's a, a Cob uh, cobisostat is a, a P450 inhibitor to boost levels of uh, uh, protease inhibitors. We have fusion inhibitors now, and there's three uh, equally effective integrase inhibitors that are available for you. I really wouldn't worry about them asking you to manage tricky patients with HIV infection. And this has made it much easier also, the, comb the fixed dose combinations to make the uh, pill load and compliance for patients much, much easier. All right, we're not done with this uh, person yet. <clears throat> uh, what antimicrobials should be given to prevent opportunistic infection? Remember, the uh, CD4 count was 38. Uh, so trimsulfa and azithromycin, uh, those two plus fluconazole, those two uh, plus uh, valgancyclovir, uh, or trimsulfa, azithromycin, fluconazole, and valgancyclovir. All right, the majority of you uh, have it, and the uh, rest of you are appropriately worried about the risk for Canada infection and for uh, herpes uh, virus infection, but, so I'll address that with you and why we don't prophylax for those two. But here's a simple table, <clears throat> and this hasn't changed for uh, decades. A simple table of, of how we primarily prophylax for opportunistic infections and why, uh, even though initially pneumocystis pneumonia was the most common pulmonary infection in HIV-infected people, it now takes a backseat to bacterial infection as the most common because we're really good at preventing trimethoprim with trimethoprim sulfa pneumocystis. Uh, so uh, 200, it's uncommon, it does happen, but it's uncommon for someone to have pneumocystis Urovice infection with a CD4 count greater than 200. So we, uh, we kick in with trimethoprim sulfa, and remember, it's a very low dose. It can be one uh, double-strength pill a day or even three times a week uh, is uh, preventative. Toxo should be prevented when you're down below 100, but they should already be on trimethoprim sulfa anyhow. Um, <clears throat> we don't need to prevent toxo if the person's serology is negative for toxo. Toxo in HIV-infected people is a reactivation of a prior infection. It's very rarely a new infection. Uh, mycobacterium... Uh, avium complex, we start to prophylax at less than 50, which is HER, and that's with once a week uh, azithromycin. And the only other prophylaxis, if needed, is everybody with HIV infection gets the best test you can, which is the IGRA, or if you don't have that, you can still do the PPD skin testing, uh, TB skin test. And if they're positive, they're immunocompromised, we give nine months of INH as prophylaxis. The reason we don't prophylax for candida infection is not because it doesn't occur. Candida esophagitis definitely occurs in HIV-infected people. Candida vaginitis is a higher incidence. It's just so easy to treat that you can just give fluconazole and it melts away uh, in the patient, rather than give fluconazole daily and promote fluconazole resistance among candida albicans. Same thing with the viral infections, herpes simplex and zoster. They can go away very quickly with a, a, antiviral treatment. And immunocompromised people are the only one that get acyclovir-resistant virus because they have no uh, um, ability to fight it off themselves, and we certainly don't want uh, the susceptibility to acyclovir to decline. 
So that's why we don't give uh, those drugs. <clears throat> I'm going to explode this a little bit and talk about things that uh, I talked to several of you in the hallway uh, that you're interested in hearing about because you're asked about it in patients, uh, is the uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis and the post-exposure uh, prophylaxis. Uh, the pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis, PrEP, uh, is a, another amazing thing that's happened with respect to the HIV epidemic that's worldwide. Um, and this is due to, there's now five studies, I only have three of them on the slide, uh, using this once-daily combination of tenofovir and emtricitabine uh, in high-risk patients randomized uh, to treatment with this versus placebo. And the high-risk uh, groups that I have listed here uh, on, on this slide that were the, was the basis for the approval by the FDA of this uh, approach, uh, one was uh, uh, men having sex with men. Um, <clears throat> the other was a heterosexual uh, uh, population of women uh, in uh, Botswana that had multiple uh, sex partners. Uh, and then uh, they studied discordant heterosexual couples. They were monogamous couples but one was HIV positive and the other was not, and they weren't predictably having protective sex. Uh, and they randomized them to preventative antiretrovirals versus placebo. And this is the percent decrease rate of transmission, a profound decrease from 50 to about 67% rate of decreasing transmission of, if untreated, a fatal virus. So this prompted the FDA to say, yes, this is reasonable. Obviously, the, the thing we have to remember is, uh, uh, and these trials had some ethical issues, as you can imagine, the first thing we do as physicians is we say you're doing unsafe behavior. Uh, it's fine that you're a couple, but please do safe sex. We have to keep counseling for safe sex, safe sex, safe sex. But if they're telling you, as humans will do, this is as good as I'm going to do, doc, or you can't expect me to always have a condom on, I just, I know myself, then we shouldn't stop there and say, I'm not going to help you. We, you give them pre-exposure prophylaxis. So here's what the FDA says that we should do with, these, uh, with this drug combination. Uh, it's approved for pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, in persons at risk, so this is someone who's not infected that has an infected partner or partners, they've had a recent STI, so they're clearly having unprotected sex. You can't get uh, an STI if you have perfectly protective sex. They have multiple partners, especially if they're uh, um, uh, anonymous partners. They tell you, I don't use condoms, or my partner will not use a condom, or if, they, if uh, they're a prostitute, a sex worker. These people, we give them less than or equal to a 90-day supply because we want to keep bringing them back. And what I do is I give them 30-day supply. Keep having them come back and say, Please, can I talk to you about safe sex again? Or can, is there any way that you can limit yourself to one partner? Things like just keep doing the public health things that we all know how to do. <clears throat> and we want to check the HIV status. These are not perfect. We didn't prevent transmission in everybody. Uh, because now if they're HIV infected, we don't want to just give them two drugs. We want to give them three drugs or because we're going to promote resistance. So that's the uh, approach to pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and uh, here's some more recommendations from the uh, IASU uh, panel. Uh, <clears throat> uh, background incidents, in, if, if there's a a uh, population that's identified in your community or in a specific country uh, that uh, has a background incidence of more than 2%. Uh, and um, uh, 
Oh, yeah, this was another uh, new uh, risk group that they uh, identified. Uh, Post-exposure prophylaxis was given at least once in the last year. So they've self-identified themselves as having a risk factor, even if they don't tell it to you right now. And then this high-risk group, IV drug users and sharing needles. And just remember the counseling, obviously. Post-exposure prophylaxis has two forms. One is very related to us, and I hope it never happens to you, and and, uh, it's happened to several of my residents over the years, uh, that you get a needle stick from an HIV-infected person. Uh, And it's it's always the residents who are on the front line and drawing the blood and starting the lines and things like that who have a higher risk than the the, the faculty seem to do unless you're in a highly invasive field of, of internal medicine. Uh, so that's one risk group, the healthcare workers. Then the other risk group is someone who has a sexual encounter with someone who is HIV positive and then wants uh, a prophylaxis afterwards. So with respect to the healthcare worker, if they ask you to act as the uh, infection control officer on the, on the boards and they say a colleague of yours or a resident in your hospital uh, has stuck him or herself with a needle, you ask two questions to, to, to try to determine, is this even a risk for this unfortunate person who got the needle stick? Uh, the first question, was the fluid that you think or, saw or know was in that needle a bloody fluid? If the answer is no, then you're done, okay? Yeah, if it's a Foley bag uh, that uh, and a nurse drew out of a syringe a urine sample and handed it to the resident and stuck his hand, stuck his hand with it, uh, and it's not bloody urine, no. And this is talking about the person who got stuck. Was the skin integrity compromised? Was it actually through the skin? Uh, And and sometimes there's a a needle stick through a glove, but there was no puncture into the skin. But the person is concerned, appropriately concerned. It got through the barrier that I had there. Please tell me that I'm not going to get HIV from this. If the answer to that is no, it did not puncture the skin. There is no skin puncture. You don't need prophylaxis. Urine and uh, contact of bloody secretions to intact skin are not considered uh, high risk uh, or any risk uh, for uh, uh, post-exposure acquisition of HIV. So even if there's a blood spill on the back of someone's hand and the skin is intact, it makes them very concerned, but you can counsel them and say that is not a, a risk factor. So if the answer is yes and yes... Then we do give prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis. Hopefully the HIV source is known, and if it's a patient in the hospital, we can test them and find out the genotype of their virus and then appropriately treat uh, in the person who's been exposed. We want to give three drugs for four weeks, and just like in the initiation of therapy for a newly diagnosed HIV-infected person, we want to give uh, emtricitabine and tenofovir, plus, and the recommendation is an integrase inhibitor, but you could substitute a a, uh, protease inhibitor. And then we test, I'm not going to ask you about this, but we test uh, at baseline uh, six weeks and 16 weeks. And if they haven't seroconverted to HIV by then, they didn't acquire HIV. And this regimen uh, has, uh, as yet, as far as I've seen in the literature, never failed uh, someone when the virus was susceptible. The other people, non-healthcare workers, may come to you saying that they've had their mucosa exposed to or non-intact skin exposed or percutaneous exposure to, non, to bloody fluids, semen, vaginal anal secretions, breast milk. Uh, if they come to you uh, after that, they've uh, been bitten 
uh, by uh, an HIV-infected person. They were in a fight with someone. Whatever the scenario you, you can come up with. Or they've obviously they've had sexual activity with someone who's HIV positive. It has to be within the uh, 72 hours. Uh, the uh, HIV virus starts to replicate very, very quickly uh, uh, once uh, it's acquired. Uh, and the prophylaxis probably uh, doesn't prevent the disease uh, if you wait more than 72 hours. Uh, the treatment is very similar to what we've talked about before. M-tricytobine and tenofovir, and either one of the integrase inhibitors is recommended. You give for 28 days. Uh, and then you test for HIV antigen and antibody to look for acute disease and, and, uh, uh, and the development of chronic disease uh, out to six months. And if it's a sexual uh, exposure, we test, like we always do for STIs, for the other sexually transmitted diseases that could have been uh, there, and we test for pregnancy. We're not done yet with this uh, patient. <clears throat> we treat her with a three-drug regimen. Her brother's with her, uh, and he says, gosh, you know, uh, I just heard my sister told me that she has HIV. Should I be tested? I'm 18, I've been sexually active with three women, uh, yeah, but uh, I have never had an STI, I've never been tested for one, uh, or none of these women uh, told me or admits to me that they have an STI, uh, and he doesn't use IV drugs. So uh, what would you tell him, and this gets to what the CDC recommendations are for screening. Uh, no, we don't need to test you, We'll test you once now. Uh, we'll test you once now, and if you have a new partner, we want you to come running in and test you. We'll test you again. Or we'll test you once now, and we'll repeat it every single year. Okay, the plurality said test him once now, which is correct. Uh, and here, uh, and some of you wanted to repeat more often, which is a little bit more often than the CDC wants us uh, and the U.S. Uh, uh, Public Service Task Force wants us to do. And here's their recommendations. Like any other screening, we risk stratify who should be tested and who should be not tested is with respect to STIs. High-risk people that we would screen at least once a year uh, on a regular basis, at least once a year, IV drug users, men having sex with men, uh, STI diagnoses, and STI testing in, in the past. This is what's currently recommended by uh, two panels uh, that uh, uh, advise us. At risk, not high risk, uh, but at risk, sorry, high risk is up here, unprotected intercourse, uh, partners at risk, or sex for drugs or money. Those people we test and this is, sounds weird, I know, but we want to test at least once during their uh, adulthood, if you can call 15 adult, up to 65, uh, which is obviously arbitrary. It's recommended to test once, and then just use your judgment from there. We're, we're not routinely testing people after they have a new partner. Uh, that's not a recommendation. If they come and ask for it and they have concerns, we usually do because people usually have concerns because they should have concerns. But it's not recommended to tell people, and when you, if you have sex with another person, I need you to come in and get tested for HIV. The only people that are not at risk are people that are not sexually active or that are, are monogamous, and you can trust that they're monogamous, 
uh, with a, a known HIV-negative partner. Uh, and these people do not need to be routinely tested unless, and you probably already know this, the recommendation now is for every pregnant woman to have HIV testing every time she's pregnant, uh, which I think is a little much, uh, and so do my OB-GYN colleagues. But that's the recommendation from the USPSTF uh, uh, to just wipe out vertical transmission of HIV, which is a, which is a good cause. Um, so that's the uh, screening recommendations. All right, let's move away from that. 34-year-old man presents to the emergency department with two weeks of slowly worsening shortness of breath, low-grade fever, and cough. He's had HIV infection for 12 years. He's been on and off antiretrovirals during that time. He had Stevens-Johnson syndrome after getting trimethoprim sulfa 10 years ago for a prior pneumonia, which we assume to be due to pneumocystis. Uh, physical exam, a low-grade fever of 100, pulse rate 94. He's breathing fast at 20. He's alert and oriented. He's in moderate respiratory distress at rest. And his lungs have bilateral crackles with no signs of consolidation. Rest of the exam is normal. Hemoglobin's 9.8. Uh, white count's 7.6 with only 6% lymphocytes. Here's his chest x-ray uh, that I think shows up very well for you. And his blood gas is on room air. Uh, PO2 of 59, PCO2 of 20, uh, was breathing fast, and he's got an appropriate uh, respiratory alkalosis based on his respiratory rate. So that's his chest x-ray. Uh, sputum was induced, uh, and in our institution we have maybe a 15% uh, uh, um, rate of successfully inducing sputum that shows us this organism uh, in patients that have this organism. And here's what's showing up uh, uh, in, on his induced sputum. And here we go. We give him oxygen. He was hypoxic. Uh, what else would you give him? Atovaquone, atovaquone and prednisone, pentamidine or pentamidine and prednisone. Remember, he's sulfoallergic, so I, I, I couldn't give you that option. Good. The plurality of you got it right. The, the, the question in your head is, okay, this is, uh, the reason should be, this is severe pneumocystis because of the hypoxemia, uh, and I can't give trimethoprim sulfa. What's the second-line drug after trimethoprim sulfa? And it's pentamidine. Atovaquone is not indicated for severe disease, partly because it hasn't been studied extensively. And then the other decision, and most of you made it, when to give prednisone for people with pneumocystis pneumonia. So these are the big two teaching points. So let me talk to you about it. This was a, uh, uh, one of my favorite, you should all have a favorite organism. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite because it, it's totally whack, wacko. Uh, it looks like a protozoan. Um, uh, and Carini, who you remember used to be called pneumocystis carinii, uh, he, he thought it was uh, a protozoan. And that's why he gave pentamidine, because pentamidine works against trypanosomiasis. And it works against this organism. Uh, but it's a fungus. Uh, and that reminds you, where does it live? Uh, like most fungi, they live in the environment. We talked about aspergillus is everywhere, mucors everywhere. Pneumocystis is, is on the carpet here. We've all been exposed to it. But because our CD4 counts are over 200, we don't get ill from it. Our cell media immunity takes care of it. So it's a fungus that looks like a protozoan, and it's killed by trimethoprim sulfa. 
It's killed by an antibacterial drug, as well as some antiprotozoal drugs. So it's a very uh, um, incongruous uh, uh, organism. What was learned <clears throat> uh, in the um, uh, turn of the century, uh, I remember taking care of these patients with pneumocystis. They would come into the hospital. We would treat them with trimethoprim sulfa, and within one day, they would be transferred to the ICU and intubated. And I would comment to the house staff and students, isn't it amazing how they know these, these people who are not physicians, but they intuitively know that they need to come in the hospital because the, tomorrow they're going to need to be in the ICU. And what I didn't realize is we were causing them to need to be in the ICU. We were giving them trimethoprim sulfa, killing these trillions of organisms in their lung. And even though their immune system is weak, it's still eventually stimulated an immune reaction that caused tremendous edema in the lungs and caused a VQ mismatch requiring them to be in the ICU. So five studies were done that showed if you give prednisone to people with moderate to severe pneumocystis, you can prevent that inflammatory reaction, just like we give prednisone in pneumococcal meningitis, who keep revisiting some certain themes, uh, and, and the, they, won't get where, they won't end up in the ICU the next day. So, the definition of moderate or, or severe is just remember the cutoff of a PO2 of 70 uh, and a PO2 of 60, but moderate or severe, or you can use the AA gradient if they give you the numbers and you want to calculate that, or they give you the AA gradient. But I usually just use the PO2. If they have moderate to severe, they bought themselves, uh, for good reasons, uh, prednisone. Uh, and the treatment of uh, severe, let's do that first because that's what, uh, what he had, is trimethoprim sulfa. The second-line drug is pentamidine drug that you may not have used much. Uh, it's, a, it's a bizarre drug. It has some uh, marrow toxicity, some renal toxicity, uh, and it also can, can uh, destroy the islet cells, causing an initial hypoglycemia as insulin is released, and then a permanent diabetes afterwards, but it saves their life with the pneumonia. And then steroids should be given to everybody with a 70 millimeter more, or less, sorry, um, uh, PO2, or an AA gradient greater than 35. Those of you who answered atovacone, that's great for mild to moderate illness. You can do that for that, or clindamycin and primaquin. Um, and trimethoprim sulfa is the drug of choice, in, uh, regardless of uh, severity, uh, if you can give it. Uh, 26-year-old presents with fever, rash, and joint aches. The fever began four days ago, and then there was bilateral knee pain. This got a little better, but then ankles got involved, the elbows got involved, and became achy. Her husband noticed a rash on her back, uh, which I will show you in a moment. She teaches first grade, uh, and five of her students were out over the last month with a strep throat. She currently denies uh, a sore throat. She was mildly febrile, pulse was fine, respirations fine, and blood pressure were fine, alert and oriented. Her throat looked fine. Uh, lungs and abdomen, uh, heart were normal. Uh, there was pain on range of motion of the knees and ankles and elbows, but there were no effusions. So there were arthralgias without evidence of arthritis. And the neuro exam was normal. Uh, and here's, here's what her husband had noticed on her back. Uh, and it was still present there. Here's her rash. Let you look at that. And here's the question. What should you diagnostically do next? echocardiogram, skin biopsy, knee joint aspiration, or an anti-streptolysin O, an ASO uh, antibody titer.
Wow, very good. Okay, so uh, uh, you're concerned about rheumatic fever, uh, and we'll walk through this in a little bit. And you're remembering uh, the Jones criteria, the modified Jones criteria, and what you need to make the diagnosis, which is this. This looks like a very busy slide, but it's, it's easy to condense it. Uh, and it sounds like most of you remember this. Uh, the Jones criteria were recently remodified. They've always been modified, but they were remodified in 2015. Very testable uh, because it's uh, two years old now. So here's, here's where they are now, and I've shown you in blue what the modifications were. Uh, the first thing, and that's why you, the vast majority of you got this question right, is you have to have some evidence of an antecedent group A strep infection. So if they have active pharyngitis, or even if they don't, and you culture their throat, uh, the yield in a non-pharyngitic throat is pretty low. Uh, but if they have an exudative pharyngitis, it's pretty high. So you do a throat culture or rapid antigen. We talked about that yesterday. But in the absence of that, an elevated or rising uh, ASO titer is sufficient to uh, show prior infection with group A strep. Uh, once you do that, you have to have two major. Uh, and it used to be plus one minor, okay? But that's no longer necessary. Or one major and two minor is still necessary. So two major criteria, you're done. So they made it a little bit easier. Uh, and they're, they're trying to make sure that we, not overdiagnose, but that we don't miss a case because of the consequences of rheumatic uh, heart disease. We're, they're trying to wipe out rheumatic heart disease in the United States, which probably will never occur. Uh, the major criteria, and most of you recognize the one that I showed you on her back, erythema marginatum, nothing else really looks like that, that annular lesion. They're usually not completely circular, but it's around a margin of a kind of a circle. Carditis, major criteria, carditis, uh, valvulitis or myocarditis, and that used to have to be uh, diagnosed clinically with a stethoscope, uh, with a uh, heart murmur, uh, 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 or evidence of heart failure, as myocarditis. Now, even if you can't hear the mitral stenosis, uh, if the echo sees it, it's good enough. They've got carditis. Polyarthritis, it, it used to be migratory and large joint onlys, but now there appears to be about 10% of patients that just have a monoarticular arthralgia. Uh, so it doesn't have to be migratory large joints. Uh, the others are chorea, which rarely occurs in adults, but is much more common in children. And I showed you erythema marginatum. And then subcutaneous nodules remains one of the major ones. Uh, the minor criteria, if, if you don't have arthritis, you can have arthralgia, and it can just be one joint now. They allowed that. And they, uh, they lowered the uh, height of the temperature. So they're really tweaking this thing. They're very bright people on these panels, and I don't want to argue with them. But here's the current Jones criteria uh, to make the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever. Where, uh, her AO, ASO titer, which most of you wanted, was markedly elevated. We did an echo, and it was fine. There was no evidence of carditis. She got amoxicillin and aspirin for 10 days, which is the treatment for the group A strep. Whether it's present or not, we treat uh, uh, on culture. And then uh, 10 days of uh, aspirin is still the best treatment for acute rheumatic fever for the symptoms. And she got better over two weeks, which is a pretty typical course. And now we have to make this decision about prophylaxis, because the only thing worse than getting rheumatic fever once is getting it a second time. And each time you get it, 
you increase the risk of rheumatic carditis, very, very high risk each time, and it, it, it's exponential. So we want to, in, pop, in uh, uh, certain populations, prevent it from happening. What duration of antibiotic prophylaxis, and thinking of just a benzathine penicillin shot every four weeks, should be given to prevent recurrences? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, or do we treat for life, or does she need to have it at all? <clears throat> Okay, good. So it's split between five years and now. <laughs> uh, good. If, uh, if five years is correct, and this is something you may not have uh, uh, dealt with, but here's, here's the AHA recommendations uh, to, to make it simple for you. The shortest we can do is five years, so we always, always prophylax. Now, if you see someone who's 72 years old with this, maybe you can make a case-by-case -case exception, but... Uh, the, uh, you can get away with just five years or until they're 21, and she was uh, 28, whichever is longer, if there's absolutely no evidence of carditis, because those people are at fairly low risk of getting carditis or, uh, um, uh, if they get reinfected. It's the people that have a little carditis the first time that are really the, the ones that get really, really sick. If there's carditis that occurs, but it goes away, after treatment, so a little cardiomyopathy that goes away after treatment, then they get 10 years, or 21, whichever is longer, and 10 years is almost always longer. Uh, and then if they have carditis and it remains, they now have uh, mitral stenosis. These are the people we really, really want to make sure we prophylax for a long period of time. So 10 years or until they're 40 years old. The further away they get from dealing with children on a regular basis, and we modify this. If they're a first-grade teacher, uh, we would treat with benzathine for life uh, to prevent an oral penicillin V uh, every day, uh, just to prevent them from getting uh, a second case. Okay. 68-year-old comes to the emergency department with fever for five days, no other symptom, has a past history of hypertension, diabetes, uh, and asymptomatic aortic stenosis. Temperature is 101.2, pulse 98, respiration 16, blood pressure is a little elevated. HENT is normal. On uh, examination, uh, there's a 3 over 6 systolic ejection murmur radiating to the carotids, but he has known aortic stenosis. Lungs are clear, abdomen is benign. Extremities show an open ulcer of the right heel with a non-foul exudate. It does not probe to bone like the gentleman did yesterday afternoon, and the skin is otherwise normal. His hemoglobin's 10, white count is 8.8 .8 with no left shift, and platelets are fine. You x-ray the foot, and there's no osteomyelitis or gas in the tissues. The chest x-ray has some cardiomegaly, uh, mostly left ventricular, uh, uh, but no pulmonary infiltrates. Uh, he started on vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam for this uh, fever. Uh, and on day two, the lab calls and says, uh, by the way, there's three out of three blood cultures with gram-positive coccyon clusters. <clears throat> what would you do next? So I hope we have a picture of this guy. MRI, that heel, uh, CT of the head, lumbar puncture, transthoracic echo, transesophageal echo. Okay, everybody wants to echo, which is uh, good, pretty much everybody. 
and then there is a, uh, a, a vote in favor of transthoracic before the transesophageal, and that's the correct answer. The, do the transthoracic first. And these are the recommendations of the American Heart Association, uh, uh, which the IDSA is also in agreement with. But let me walk you through uh, what uh, uh, the reasoning is for this. And most of you, it looks like if you're getting an echo, are making the diagnosis of endocarditis, trying to make the diagnosis of endocarditis, which you should be. Remember that we're still using the uh, modified Duke criteria, which uh, uh, Dave Durack um, uh, at uh, Duke, so it's three Ds, uh, came up with in 1994. It's embarrassing to say that prior to 1994, the echocardiogram was not part of the diagnostic criteria for, if you can imagine, for endocarditis. It wasn't until uh, he came up with this proposal that it became that. Uh, so in order to diagnose uh, uh, endocarditis, uh, we will look for two major criteria, and then if we have to, we can go into minor criteria. But the two major criteria, uh, one is blood culture criteria, which we already started to get on this patient, and the, uh, the other, which almost all of you wanted, is echocardiographic criteria, and I want to clarify exactly what each of these are. The positive blood culture criteria are two or more blood cultures with an organism that pretty much only causes endocarditis, and I'm exaggerating to, to kind of make the point. Uh, the um, uh, organisms that typically only, only know how to do endocarditis are the viridens streptococci, strep bovis. You may remember the HACEC group. Uh, they renamed Haemophilus afrophilus to Aggregatobacter afrophilus, so now it's the ASEC group. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not responsible for these changes. Uh, Staph aureus does a lot of things, but community-acquired high-grade bacteremia from Staph aureus is predictive of endocarditis. Patients with central lines in the hospital that get Staph aureus or have skin lesions that have Staph aureus, that's a different beast. And then enterococci, if community-acquired, is also considered uh, meeting the, the high-grade bacteremia criteria. And then... <clears throat> If you have two or more blood cultures more than 12 hours apart, or, or three or, uh, or three or 50% or more, or greater than three, but high-grade bacteremia for any other organism, so even if it's E. coli, a common cause of endocarditis, that meets the criteria for persistent bacteremia. Remember, in patients with endocarditis, 95% of the blood cultures are positive. It's, it, the infection's in the bloodstream, so every time you draw blood, you should find it. And you can check the arterial supply or the, uh, the venous uh, peripheral supply, and it's the same high yield. Uh, and one of the modifications that was made, and it came from Europe because there's more coxiella than there is in the United States, is a blood culture for coxiella or serology for it. But that's a, that's a trivial point that probably won't be tested. The <clears throat> second major criteria is evidence of endocardial involvement. Uh, and here... Uh, or what they allow us to do. And one of them doesn't require an echo. Uh, it, when the echo is read, and our cardiology colleagues are very good about this, and we may have some cardiologists uh, in, in the audience or in future cardiologists, uh, it has to be an oscillating mass. It can't just be a bump. There's these things called Lembel's excrescences. The echoes are so good right now. They're half millimeter, and they can see them. And they're just wear and tear bumps. So it has to be a, an oscillating bump it's flapping in the breeze uh, uh, for the uh, uh, criteria to be met uh, for the, the mass. 
Uh, and it has to be on a valve, a supporting structure. It can be on a chordae tendine, uh, or in the path of a regurgitant jet, uh, or on an implanted device, like an ICD lead. Uh, an abscess meets the criteria, and if, the, if there's a prosthetic valve and is now dehissed, that meets the criteria. We, non-cardiologists, speaking for myself, we can make this, this uh, endocardial involvement criteria uh, also. If we listen to this guy and he has AI now, he has aortic insufficiency, yeah, we know he had aortic stenosis before, that's it. That meets the criteria. We'll get the echo, especially if it's acute AI, but we've met the criteria right there and he has endocarditis. The minor criteria are a predisposition, either they have known endocardial disease or they're IV drug users, high grade, uh, uh, low to high-grade fever, or vascular phenomena, any one of the typical findings that you see uh, in endocarditis. Immunologic phenomenon, the Osler's nodes and glomerulonephritis, or if the blood culture is positive but didn't meet that major criteria, it's only one out of three staph aureus, that's a minor criteria and you can use that. One major and three minor, or fi all five minor, and you've got the diagnosis. So here's the decision point that, uh, that almost all of you uh, uh, made. And here's the, uh, here's the AHA uh, ACC recommendations. Patient at risk or with suspected native valve or prosthetic valve endocarditis, you get two blood cultures. We often get three. And the first step, there's no other steps here, are the transthoracic echo. Uh, we don't go right to the transesophageal echo, with some exceptions, and I'll show them to you in a second. Then, once you do the uh, transthoracic echo, if, the, if it's non-diagnostic and you still think that uh, anacarditis is likely, you can do the TEE. If there's complications present or suspected, they develop a conduction block. They have a new left bundle branch block, and you're saying, gosh, I hope there isn't an abscess. Uh, in the septum. Let's get, it, let's get a TEE. -E. Those are much better at picking up abscesses. Or if they have an intracardiac lead present, be, uh, it's much, much higher yield on seeing vegetations on a lead when you can get the probe right next to the lead versus going through all of the uh, interference through the chest wall. Here's when you uh, do a TEE -E in infective endocarditis. It, and I've reviewed this on the prior slide. You think it's endocarditis, but the TTE is negative. The TTE picks up about 75% of vegetations. The TEE picks about 90, 95. So it is better, but 75 is not bad, and it's not an invasive test, the transthoracic. If you suspect or know there's complications, you do the TEE, and, and that helps the cardiovascular surgeon know exactly where he or she should go, and if there's leads present. So that's, that's the only time you should be checking off TEE on the exam. So continuing this case, the blood cultures grow methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. Echocardiogram showed a 5-millimeter vegetation on that, la uh, that aortic va uh, valve, the uh, left aortic valve cusp that was already previously injured. How do you want to treat him? So we have uh, MSSA. How do you want to treat him? He's already on vancomycin. You start on vancomycin, piperacillin, tazobactam. Back off to the vancomycin. Back off to nafcillin. Sorry, change to nafcillin alone. Change to nafcillin with just a, a, a whiff of genomycin for three to five days, or nafcillin and genomycin for the, the first two weeks with the genomycin.
Great. Uh, B is the correct answer. Some of you wanted to give a little bit of genomycin, which is what we used to do uh, uh, and uh, we stopped doing. Uh, and we stopped doing it because uh, of this study. Uh, there were studies prior to this that showed if you gave a little genomycin, the bacteremia cleared a little quicker. But that was it. No other outcome was better. The cure rates were the same. And it made us feel good that the bacteria cleared a little quicker. And, uh, and that was understandable. And then this study was a, uh, a study that was published uh, uh, in uh, uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and it was a review uh, of a study that was looking at daptomycin versus standard regimens for uh, staph endocarditis. So it sounds like it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But what they did is they looked at the standard regimens for staph endocarditis, and if people gave an anti-staphylococcal penicillin and genomycin, which was a standard regimen back at that time, there was a 25% nephrotoxicity rate. Vancogent had a similar rate, and we've all learned that Vanc is minimally nephrotoxic, and Gent definitely is. But the rates were the same in these two. And daptomycin, meaning not giving an aminoglycoside at all, had a rate that was one-third of that. So after this study came out, uh, we pulled back away from giving a, a whiff of, of genomycin first, uh, and definitely not two weeks. We used to give five, three to five days. So don't uh, give the genomycin anymore initially in, in, in that condition. So let's uh, blow up endocarditis for a little bit. Uh, about 10 years ago, the recommendations for prophylaxis for uh, endocarditis were kind of complicated, and we were over-treating. We were over-prophylaxing people. Uh, now the indications for prophylaxis, for prevention of endocarditis, have become much, much simpler, especially in adult medicine. Uh, the only people that we should worry about giving antibiotics to if they go for certain procedures are people with a prosthetic valve or people that say, hey, I've had endocarditis before. The, the end, one, after having endocarditis, the valve never heals completely. And about a third of people, the vegetation stays there. It's sterile, but it stays there. And it's susceptible to being infected from any transient bacteremia. So... Uh, these are the two. This is a, a, I do want to be thorough. So this is, if they've had uh, cardiac valvulopathy, status post-cardiac transplantation, and these are, are, are people that have had co corrected congenital heart disease. But these are the, the, the big two, these two that you're going to want to uh, listen to on the exam that they're saying, oh, this someone needs, it, it does need endocarditis prophylaxis. Once you determine they have a predisposing heart condition, then you have to look at, well, what procedure are they having? Is it likely to cause bacteremia, transient bacteremia, from oral flora? Because that's what we're worried about. We're worried about viridan streptococci and a little less worried about staph aureus because about a third of us can be colonized. But we're really prophylaxing against viridan streptococcus. And who gets transient bacteremia from viridan streptococci? People having dental procedures if there's manipulation of the gums and the, or periapical space or there's perforation of the oral mucosa. Not just going in for dental cleaning. That doesn't count. That, uh, uh, we're not supposed to give antibiotics. But if they're going in for a dental extraction uh, and reimplantation of teeth or anything that would puncture the gums or cause uh, uh, manipulation of the gingiva. 
And then, uh, and this might be going away, but for now, respiratory procedures, bronchoscopy, where there's cutting of mucosa, an ENT surgeon going in and removing a, um, uh, a, a suspected tumor of the tongue or biopsying a cheek lesion or something like that, that'll cause a transient bacteremia with viridans streptococci, just like resection of a tooth. So these people are the only two people that should get prophylaxis. We used to prophylax for GU procedures to prevent enterococcal bacteremia. That's no longer recommended. Everybody else, no prophylaxis indicated. So in order to get prophylaxis, they have to have prior endocarditis or prosthetic valve and having a procedure that's going to perforate the oral mucosa. If either of those is no, don't give prophylaxis. And the prophylactic regimens haven't changed too much over the last 10 years. The thing to remember uh, is that you give a single dose, amoxicillin's the preferred drug, an hour before, and that's it. The bacteremia occurs for about 30 minutes during the, after the dental procedure, and that's it. We used to give a dose six hours later. They don't get bacteremic once they're home. Uh, so just a single dose. If for some reason they're NPO, you can give IV ampicillin or cefazolin or ceftriaxone. And pen allergy is the only one to remember. Pen allergy and requiring prophylaxis. Uh, clindamycin if it's a bad pen allergy, uh, anaphylaxic uh, allergy. But if it's not, you can use cephalexin uh, 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 for them. All right. So that was a whirlwind tour of uh, endocarditis. Um, uh, 41, you're consulted from the psych service to evaluate a patient with a urinary, tra urinary tract infection. Uh, she's a 44-year-old woman. She was admitted with suicidal ideation. Uh, she admits recent use of crack cocaine. And as part of the drug screen that they did for her, they sent off a urinalysis. Uh, and the urinalysis came back positive, and a culture was done. It was automatically triggered because of the positive urinalysis. She denies dysuria, frequency, or urgency. She has no other medical problems. Vital signs are normal. Physical exam is normal. Uh, her tox showed the positive for cocaine and cannabinoids. And this was the, uh, the uh, urine that had a reflex culture done. I don't know if they do this at your institution, but a lot of places, uh, if a UA has leukesterase and more than five white cells, they automatically do the culture. They don't wait for the doctor to call. They automatically do it. And sure enough, it came back with greater than 10 to the 5th E. coli. Her pregnancy test was negative. That was done by the psychiatrists. So here, that's her. What would you recommend? The psych service wants to know what, how to treat this infectious disease. Trimethoprim sulfa for three days. She's not allergic. Levo for three days. Nitrofrantoin for five days. Phosphomycin for one day. Or no treatment at this time. Uh, good. Most of you picked E, which is the correct answer. And this, this is to get at uh, the understanding of the approach to asymptomatic bacteriuria. Um, it's commonly called asymptomatic urinary tract infection, but we should get away from that. It's not an infection. It's a colonization. Uh, so call it asymptomatic bacteriuria. Uh, here's the approach. It's very simple. Uh, there's only three times on the exam that you will want to treat asymptomatic bacteriuria. Uh, and if it ain't one of those three, don't let them tease you into giving an antibiotic. 
The first thing, pregnant women should all be treated with asymptomatic bacteria, and our gynae, OB-GYNE colleagues screen for this. Uh, and, if, and if you do primary care for uh, pregnant women as well, you'll be screening for this. Uh, because if you don't treat it, there's a high risk of pyelonephritis, and there's increased fetal and maternal morbidity and mortality if there's an untreated urinary tract infection in the first trimester. So if they're pregnant, then we treat. And you can give three days of trimethoprim sulfa if they're within this window in their pregnancy. And if not, nitrofrantoin or beta-lactams are safe to give in pregnancy. So that's the first branch point. Her pregnancy test was negative. Next, are they about to undergo a urologic procedure? And this is typically for men. So it's a guy with the E. coli 10 to the 5th. He's going for a TURP. Uh, and the urologists know this, so they don't consult internists, and they certainly don't consult infectious disease. They, you don't want to be ripping apart things and causing blood in an area that's heavily colonized with bacteria. You will get a bacteremia. Uh, it's usually transient, but sometimes not. So those the urologists want a sterile field when they go in with a cystoscope to do a urologic procedure. Even if they're just biopsying a bladder mass, they want it sterile, and they should want it sterile. And the last one, which is, is fairly more recent, uh, is if they've had a recent renal transplant, and I'll show you the data for this and why, just so you, you, you understand the evidence-based uh, medicine part of it. These two groups, we do want to treat asymptomatic bacteria, and we give a fluoroquinolone for three days, and we're done. Otherwise, no, 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 don't treat. Don't treat. And this is a very common, other than viral URIs, it's the second most common abuse, if you will, of antibiotics, where we're treating people in a nursing home with a Foley catheter, lab comes back with E. coli, and, and we chase it down, and we create a resistant organism. Here's the study that uh, changed things and, and solidified the, the reason for that third criteria. It was thought that, to be true for quite some time. This was a study of asymptomatic bacteria and renal transplant recipients, over 1,000 of them over five years. It was done at Cornell. Uh, and they uh, looked at the incidence and uh, risk factors for a urinary tract infection in the first uh, three months. They were just studying UTIs in the first three months. And then uh, the, they also looked as, a, uh, as an endpoint, uh, what happened when the person was treated? 21% uh, of the people within the first three months of transplant had a UTI, so it's a, a very common occurrence. Uh, and two-thirds of them were asymptomatic. So the most common urinary tract infection in a transplant recipient is an asymptomatic one, uh, or asymptomatic bacteria. Uh, the uh, hazard ratio for rejection was three times higher in untreated patients. So it's not that the patients got pyelonephritis or got back, uh, 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 bacteremia and got sick. There was a threefold higher risk of rejection all this preparation and finding the donor and doing the surgery, threefold higher risk of rejecting that kidney, all that work that you put in if you didn't treat the UTI. And the, the reasoning is, and it's probably true, it makes sense to me, that if you have these, uh, these new antigens in there, this E. coli, in, in someone, and you stimulate the immune system in them because there's a foreign antigen, in addition to the foreign antigens that could be from the kidney, you will incite a rejection in the person. If you stimulate the immune system, they're going to reject the kidney. So uh, that's why that third group is an important one to recognize if they give you that on the exam. All right, 28-year-old woman calls your office with dysuria and frequency for two days. She denies fever, abdominal pain, or flank pain. 
She's an established patient of yours being treated with fluoxetine for depression. She's never had a urinary tract infection before. She's sexually active only with her husband for seven years. According to your microbiology lab, and you all get these from hospitals if you work at hospitals, they tell you what's the susceptibility of the E. coli they've cultured over the last year. According to them, uh, over the last year, 25% of the E. coli are resistant to trimethoprim sulfa in that community that comes to that facility. What do you recommend for her? Trimethoprim sulfa for three days, levofloxacin for three days, nitrofrantoin for five days, phosphomycin one dose, or come in for a culture. I, I don't want to treat empirically. I want to know what you have. <clears throat> uh, Nitrofrantoin for five days is the best answer. Good. And some people wanted a culture. So let's walk through. I did asymptomatic bacteriuria with you. Now let's do symptomatic bacteriuria with you. Um, uh, whoops. Oh, good. Okay. The first step, <clears throat> uh, the first step in treating a UTI is decide is it complicated or not. And a common misconception is, oh, if it's pyelonephritis, now it's complicated. No, 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 no. There's cystitis and pyelonephritis, and either one can be complicated or uncomplicated. There, you can have uncomplicated pyelonephritis. So what makes it a complicated cystitis or a complicated pyelonephritis? Uh, complicated means that they have an innate immune problem. And diabetes is considered sufficient immunosuppression to call it complicated. So, uh, uh, so if they're diabetic with cystitis, it's now complicated cystitis. If they're immunocompromised for other reasons, HIV, they're on cancer chemotherapy, whatever, they're on a tanercept, it's now con complicated. Any structural anomaly, they have a duplicate ureter, they have a horseshoe kidney, complicated. Any foreign body placed in there, so is there a ureteral stent in place, complicated. Resistant organism, <clears throat> and men are usually considered complicated urinary tract infections because it's so uncommon to get UTIs in men, unless there's BPH, that you suspect there's an underlying reason for the, for the problem and you worry that it's complicated. Everybody else is uncomplicated. And here's the IDSA uh, uh, algorithm. You determine the location. We do this clinically. Uh, the low grade, like this patient, low grade fever or no fever, just a little couple of dysuria days uh, in there, but no flag pain, high grade fever, chills, uh, no fatigue, no signs of systemic uh, cytokine release. It's, it's probably cystitis. Versus the opposite, flank pain uh, uh, in the patient, high-grade fever, chills, spiking temperature, uh, signs of, uh, of sepsis, tachypnea, tachycardia. Then we say pyelonephritis. Now, granted, about a third of pyelonephritis doesn't have flank pain, so there is some error in our clinical judgment. If you're sure it's cystitis and it's uncomplicated, then you can give trimethoprim sulfa for three days or nitrofrantoin for five days. The reason that nitrofrantoin is the better choice in this patient is the high uh, prevalence of resistance to e. uh, trimethoprim sulfa of E. coli in the community that I gave you. Uh, if it is a complicated infection, the only change is that you must give the trimethoprim sulfa for seven days now, and nitrofrantoin is not indicated for complicated infections. Nitrofrantoin doesn't get any, it's a kind of a cool drug, it has very little blood level, 
and it's heavily filtered uh, immediately by the kidney, sky-high uh, uh, urine levels. So in, if there's a complicated infection, which means that there's a chance of getting pyelonephritis if you fail to treat, you're going to be in trouble because nitrofurantoin doesn't have any uh, tissue concentrations in the kidney. The quinolones do, however. So now you can start using the quinolones. Second-line drugs are fluoroquinolones. Uh, and this, the CDC really wants us uh, to stop using quinolones as much as we're doing. They're very worried about uh, soft tissue injury, Achilles tendon rupture, things like that. Plus, and I talked to you yesterday about Shigella resistance to quinolones, we are creating resistant organisms by overusing quinolones. So they want us to get away f uh, from, uh, from using those. Pylonephritis, you can use trimethoprim sulfa for two weeks if the resistance levels permit. Uh, or uh, fluoroquinolones for seven days. Here's just some caveats, and most of you use this reasoning, about treating uh, urinary tract infections. Trimethoprim sulfa should be your go-to drug, as you saw in the prior slide, unless the resistance is above 20%. Uh, and that makes sense. We don't have to routinely culture an outpatient with acute cystitis. If we know he or she will be compliant, we can treat without a culture. But if the prevalence of E. coli greater resistance is greater than 25% and you call in trimethoprim sulfa, you're taking a one in four chance that you're absolutely not treating what you think you're treating. And that's just not wise. So you have to stay away from that. Nitrofurantoin, I already told you, if you think there's pyelonephritis, or if it's complicated, stay away from that. Uh, phosphomycin, the same thing. It, it's concentrated in the urine, but not in the blood. And it's actually less efficacious than the others. So it's only used in people with a lot of allergies. Uh, you may see this done. You can use ceftriaxone or aminoglycoside. The patient comes to the emergency department, uh, and they give uh, these two drugs uh, before they send them up to be admitted or some, rarely discharged from the hospital. That's fine. Uh, uh, you can uh, use those, especially if there's a high prevalence of quinolone resistance in your community. And beta-lactams, as you saw, uh, you can use them, but they're routinely less effective than other uh, agents. They don't eradicate the GI focus of the organism, and so relapses are more common. Uh, we're right at the bottom of the hour, uh, and I'm going to finish with this. This is uh, recent enough, I think. Uh, the FDA came out, and the CDC supports this. That they're, uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen these complications. I have rarely seen them, but they're very worried about them. Tendinopathy, tendon myopathy, neuropathy, arthropathy, and alterations in CNS function from the quinolones. And they're telling us do not use quinolones, doctors, uh, for acute sinusitis. And we're going to have a sinusitis case in a little bit. For exacerbations of COPD, stop using them for that. Okay, go to the macrolides and things. Uh, and uncomplicated urinary tract infections. That's why trimethoprim sulfa and nitrofrantoin, like a lot of you picked, uh, is the right answer. This is a 16-year-old uh, boy, and I'll show you a picture of his uh, legs in a second. He's brought to the emergency department complaining of uh, an unmeasured fever and severe headache for uh, two days. Uh, yesterday, a rash began on his wrists and ankles that is spreading to his trunk today. Uh, physical exam, uh, temperature is 103, pulse is 90, respiratory rate is 20, and his blood pressure is 100 over 68. Uh, he's complaining of a terrible headache. His neck is supple and lungs, heart, and abdomen are normal. And he has a petechial rash on his distal extremities, which uh, should be very apparent on this slide. 
and his labs. Uh, hemoglobin is 14, white count 4.9, platelets are down to 96,000. He has not uh, traveled. Uh, uh, he's got a hyponatremia, uh, and the rest of the uh, lights were normal, and uh, his glucose is 78. Uh, his creatinine was normal too, and I should have put that in here. Uh, urinalysis is white count. Uh, he, has, uh, he has seven white cells in the uh, urine. He has 44 red cells. What uh, antibiotic would you give him? Doxycycline, levofloxacin, vancomycin, vancomycin, tazobactam, vancomycin, and ceftriaxone or streptomycin. Very good. So you're recognizing this animal in the zoo uh, as um, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. And this is one of the uh, uh, many infectious diseases we treat empirically. And what's uh, different about this one is it's, it's hard to make the diagnosis of this uh, with any uh, high-yielding test, and I'll talk to you about that in a little bit, other than your clinical acumen. Uh, so uh, we talked about ticks earlier yesterday. Uh, this is the, the dermacenter, the dog tick, dermacenter variabilis. Um, and it, uh, like other organisms we talked about, uh, in, in infects the capillary endothelial cells. So it causes an inflammation of the capillaries in the meninges, and a severe headache is often a clue and is almost always included in the board's questions. Uh, and remember, in, in adult medicine, uh, in the, he's 16, but still that, that's uh, close enough. Uh, we adults, we shouldn't be getting a new headache. We shouldn't get a different headache. We all have headaches. I've yet to meet an adult who says, I have no idea what you mean by headache. Uh, but we, you know what your headaches are, your caffeine withdrawal headaches that you have in the morning. Or if you have my, I have migraines, so I know exactly what I'm about. But if I were to get a new headache, a different headache I've never had before, that's a concern. And in neurology, obviously, there's concerns about subarachnoid hemorrhage. But in infectious disease, it's always a concern, meningitis and things like this. Um, the rash is not there initially, but when it occurs, it is fairly typical uh, in that it's maculopapular and then petechial, and it's in the wrists and ankles. It's a distal rash in palms and soles. And part of the reason for this, it, the reason that the rash is there is it's, it's, it's the inflammation of the capillary endothelial cells, uh, and uh, that causes uh, rupture of the tight junctions and, and, uh, and red cells to extravasate, and that creates the petechia. Uh, in the uh, distal extremities, all of the capillaries are very close to the surface. There's not a lot of soft tissue uh, over them. In the thighs and the proximal and the proximal arms, there's a lot more soft tissue. So even though there's rupture of the capillaries, they're an inch down. You can't see them. But all of the ruptured capillaries are easily seen uh, on the distal extremities. And part of the reason it's in the wrist is movement of the wrists and movement of the ankles is something we do on a regular basis, and that can, the capillaries are fragile and they break. So that should help you remember where the rash is. There's a, a, a common loss of uh, blood volume and a hypovolemic hyponatremia that occurs uh, as part of the symptoms. And platelets are consumed at the site of the petechia, so thrombocytopenia is common, as was seen in this patient. Another thing to, to recognize, and we see this all the time, but we don't see it. Uh, we don't realize we're seeing it. Uh, this patient had a relative bradycardia, which you've probably been taught about uh, here and there in, in, in uh, certain diseases. 
Uh, the definition of relative bradycardia uh, is a temperature over 102, and, you, and I hope this makes sense. You flip the last two numbers, so the 102 becomes 120, and you subtract 10. And that's what the normal pulse should be. So if I had pneumococcal pneumonia and I came in with a temperature of 103, my pulse should be 120 or more. Uh, that's normal response, sympathetic response to infection. Uh, if there's an adult with a simultaneously acquired uh, uh, measured temperature and pulse that's in sinus rhythm, who's not on something that would slow the pulse rate, uh, like a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, who has a pulse less than this, that's relative bradycardia. And there's only a few things that do it. It looks like a lot, but there's only a few things that do this on a regular basis. It was first described uh, in, in yellow fever, which we're not going to talk about today, um, and it's unlikely to be on the boards. But it can occur in dengue. Uh, and I have to think back. I think that dengue case had this. Um, uh, but it's also seen, and I don't know why this is true, but this is how I remember it. It's seen in organisms that are intracellular in their multiplication. So brucella and legionella and tularemia and mycoplasma pneumonia, it's a common finding in that, typhoid, uh, leptospirosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which we're talking about right now, typhus and Q fever. And then uh, it's also seen in malaria. Then it's also seen in a bunch of non-infectious causes of hyperthermia, which is really not fever. So central fever, drug fever, tumor fever, and factitious fever will have uh, a, a relative bradycardia. I remember when I was, uh, when I was like 10, uh, I realized that, in, uh, I'm old enough, we had the glass thermometers that had mercury in it. I realized that if I wanted to stay home from school, I could tell my mom I didn't feel well, and I could uh, take the, temperature, the thermometer and put it near the light bulb in, by my lamp uh, and then say, okay, mom, I've got to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. It's a and then I would remove it and say, all right, mom. Uh, 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 what does it show? And I remember I was supposed to go to school to have a swimming test, and I was, I'm a horrible swimmer. Uh, and so she grabbed the thermometer, and she looked, and she said, oh, you're very sick. I said, what is it? And she said, 114. <laughs> so I, I was busted. My, my pulse rate was probably normal. It was a factitious fever. Uh, I'm sure, well, it went up after I got busted probably, but... So I was never able to use that again. So here's where Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever is. It's, it was first described in people working on the Transcontinental Railroad through the Rocky Mountains. But actually, it, it's not that commonly seen in the Rocky Mountains anymore. It's really, if they give you a geographic location, it'll be in the Midwest uh, and uh, the Southeast United States is where the dermocenter tick and the uh, Rickettsia rickettsiae is, is uh, more endemic. Uh, Cultures are ridiculously hard to do, and the lab won't do them. You need a biohazard containment center to do them because it's highly infectious by the aerosol route. Uh, so they, they, the lab won't do it. Uh, you can send it to the CDC. If you want to make a quick diagnosis, you can send the uh, skin for a biopsy. And I think you can see the organisms here that are staining, and then there's an immunofluorescent antibody you can put on the skin biopsy to make a diagnosis. And that has a, a pretty good uh, yield. Uh, the IgM antibody turns positive in about seven days, but it, you should have started treating with doxycycline by then. 
Uh, you don't want to wait for the culture to come back. And IgG takes more than 10 days. And empiric tetrodoxycycline is the drug of choice. Uh, the second-line drug is still chlor uh, chloramphenicol. Thank you. I've, I've eliminated from my from my mind because of the United States has more lawyers per square inch than any other place. Okay, 44. 78-year-old woman is admitted with a left middle cerebral thrombotic stroke. Uh, and on day four, she develops a fever, and you're, you're asked to see her. Temperature is 101, respiratory rate is 16, blood pressure is 128 over 84. Uh, the exam is normal other than her unfortunate aphasia and right hemiparesis. Uh, she's had a pick line in her right arm. She has a pick line in her right arm. Hemoglobin is 11.4. Uh, uh, white count is 14.8, and platelets are 300. Her blood glucose is uh, uh, normal, 98. Chest X-ray is normal. Uh, two peripheral and one pick hub culture uh, are, are drawn uh, out of concern for uh, line sepsis in her. Which of the following would you give? Uh, vancomycin, vancomycin and cefepime, vancomycin and fluconazole, vancomycin, cefepime, and fluconazole. Okay, everybody wants to give vancomycin, and some, and this is very reasonable answers, some also want to include some gram-negative coverage. And so let me uh, help you uh, with describing what the IDSA wants us to do with respect to when to add more than vancomycin, because clearly everybody correctly wants to give vancomycin, because uh, Staph aureus is the most common organism that would cause Lyme sepsis. So here's what they, uh, uh, here's how to diagnose uh, CLABSies, or central line-associated bloodstream infections. Uh, if the line is removed, which is part of the treatment in many cases, if the cath tip and the blood culture have the same organism, you're done. Uh, retrospectively, you can say, oh, good, it was line sepsis. We know we're the source of this woman's fever. But usually, typically what happens, unless they're horribly septic, is the line is retained. And just as was done in this case, there's hub cultures and there's peripheral cultures. And this is the simple table to decide, is it a CLABSI, is it a colonization of the catheter, or is it bacteremia unrelated to the catheter? And you can leave the catheter in uh, and find out where the other source is. If the hub culture, if the, uh, the pick line culture from the hub uh, uh, and the peripheral culture have the same bug in it, we still have to decide which came first. Was there a bacteremia that seeded the hub, the pick? Or did the pick cause the bacteremia? And there's two ways to do it, and you need your lab to, to assist you in this. One, it, it requires, one requires quantification of the blood culture. If the hub has three or more times the amount of bacteria in it than the blood culture, it makes sense that, okay, well, the source is the pick, and their lesser amounts are getting into the blood. So that's one way to diagnose it. And... If the uh, hub culture grows in the lab, if it turns the machine on, saying, oop, positive blood culture, uh, by shining the laser through it or, or detecting the CO2 production, two hours or more prior to the blood, that's a sign that the hub is the source and the blood is a secondary source. So that's how to differentiate if both are positive, where did it come from, which is the chicken and which is the egg. 
If the hub is positive, you draw blood out of that and it's sent and it's positive, but the peripheral bloodstream is negative, then the, the catheter is colonized and the fever is from something else. And if the hub is negative, then it can't be the source. If the peripheral blood is positive, then it's bacteremia <coughs> unrelated to the line. Okay, now here's the differentiating point that, that several of you needed. Vancomycin is always given empirically because in the hospital, Staph aureus has a 50-50 chance of being MRSA or MSSA, just like in the community now. Anti-pseudomonal gram-negative coverage, that cefepime that a lot of you wanted to give, is given if there's severe sepsis, so sepsis with end-organ failure, and I know that term is going out of style now. Uh, neutropenic patients, remember we always want to give gram-negative coverage for neutropenic patients. That's one of the first cases we did yesterday. If you know they're already colonized with a resistant gram-negative, so they have pseudomonas in their urine already, somebody had sent a urine culture on her for some reason, <coughs> you would give it. And uh, femoral lines, because of their location and their proximity to the fecal flora, uh, are much more commonly infected with gram-negative bacilli than our pick lines in an arm. So a femoral line focus, and that's why you probably know we try to get rid of femoral lines as soon as we can. They're a very easy line to put in, uh, but once the patient's been resuscitated, we should switch it over to a, a line that is not femoral. So these are the only reasons that cefepime would have been a reasonable choice, and she didn't have any of those. And then I threw in fungal treatment as well on the, uh, to uh, educate us about that. Uh, uh, antifungal therapy uh, should be given empirically in someone who you think has uh, uh, CLABSI, if they've had prior broad-spectrum antibacterials, so if she had had uh, vancomycin and zosin for an intra-abdominal infection for four days, and now you think she has a PICC line infection, that's a classic setup for fungal infection. If they have more than one site already colonized, one or more, sorry, with candida albicans, so there's a sputum culture or a urine culture, uh, if they have a hematologic malignancy, again, darn it, that femoral line. Candida albicans is normal flora uh, of the bowel, so we worry about that with uh, central lines in the, in the femoral space, uh, uh, femoral uh, um, uh, vein. Uh, and uh, TPN uh, is uh, also predisposes to fungal infection. Echinocandins are the drugs of choice. You can use fluconazole if there's been no azole in the last three months, and your resistance to azoles in your hospital is very low if you get that data from your hospital. Uh, but echinocandins now are the drug of choice. All right, we're still with her. Uh, in 24 hours, the cultures from the periphery and the PIC hub grow, show growth of gram-positive coccyne clusters. That would be, if I asked you what's the most likely thing, you would guess that. It's identified 24 hours later as MRSA uh, with an MIC of uh, 0.5 microgram per ml to vancomycin, so it's a sensitive strain. She's defervesced and her exam is unchanged. Uh, when should the PICC line be pulled? Now, uh, not now, but if blood cultures stay positive for three days after vancomycin, if blood cultures stay positive one week after vancomycin, do a TEE, and if it shows vegetation three days after vancomycin, uh, if a TEE shows vegetation one week after vancomycin. <clears throat>
Okay, most of you are saying now, and that is correct. And here's, here's why. And it looks complicated, but uh, it's, uh, it's not. Um, the <coughs> line should be pulled uh, uh, right away for some clinical reasons, and then they should be pulled right away for some bacteriologic reasons, because there are certain bugs that we know we cannot eradicate with any uh, regular frequency unless we pull the line. It's unfortunate, but they just hold on for dear life. People with severe sepsis or, uh, and or hemodynamic instability, you know, part of the treatment for sepsis and severe sepsis is source control. So if it's a line sepsis and they're, they're having acute kidney injury and ARDS and hypotension requiring pressors, they get rid of the sores, pull out the line. If there's metastatic infection, not, this isn't cancer, this is metastatic infection, so they have meningitis, osteomyelitis, endocarditis, they have pulmonary uh, septic emboli, get rid of the source, pull the line. If there's suppurative thrombophlebitis, the vein actually has pus in it, a palpable cord full of pus and you can stick a needle in, that's essentially endocarditis. And if you can remove that source, go in and remove that peripheral vein, absolutely uh, 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 pull the line and re remove the vein. If the blood cultures stay positive after 72 hours, it's telling you, you can give all the appropriate antibiotics you want, you will never eradicate this unless you get rid of the foreign body. So if any of those are true, you pull the line. And then a lot of you were on top of this. Staph aureus, so this is short-term catheters and long-term catheters. So this would be a, um, a Hickman catheter or a port uh, versus this is a pick line. Uh, uh, and there's slight differences down here. But Staph aureus, if you can remember these, Staph aureus, Pseudomonas, Fungi, and Mycobacteria. Uh, uh, they're often atypical Mycobacteria, non-tuberculous. You, you have to remove the line. doesn't matter if it's a pick line uh, or uh, a uh, port uh, for administration of chemotherapy. You have to remove the line. If there are uh, other non-Pseudomonas gram-negatives or enterococci, if it's a short-term catheter, it's recommended to remove it because they're very easy to remove. If it's a long-term catheter, you can try to retain that port uh, by uh, treating with antibiotics. Uh, and uh, you can use a technique that's called antibiotic lock, where you tell them, uh, the nursing staff, please do not use this for anything, and instill, let's say it's a vancomycin-sensitive enterococcus, instill a large quantity of vancomycin into the, uh, into the port and lock it, uh, uh, metaphorically lock it, don't let anybody use it, and just let that high concentration of vancomycin sit there until the next time you have to give the cancer chemotherapy through that port. Uh, and there's data suggesting that you can, you can retain about 60% of the lines by doing that. Obvious, if, obviously, if during this they become septic and other things happen, you've got to pull, you've got to get the surgeons to come back and say, you know, I need a new, I need a new port on the other side. Okay, so that's how, when to remove lines. So the line is pulled. Blood cultures on day three and seven of vancomycin are negative. Everything's going great. On day seven, our vital signs are normal and the exam is unchanged. White count and blood glucose are normal. A TEE on day eight is, shows no vegetations. And remember, with Staph aureus bacteremia, we always want to do a TEE to make sure that there's no uh, um, uh, vegetations. Uh, and you can start with a TTE. All right. 
So, next question. How long would you continue antibiotics? Uh, and we are uh, day seven. Discontinue now. Uh, treat for a total of two weeks. Treat for a total of four to six weeks. Or a total of eight weeks. Uh, most people are doing two weeks, which is the correct answer, and then there's a little bit of stopping now or go four to six weeks. Um, here's the uh, IDSA recommendations. It, again, it looks complicated, but it's, it, it, it's not. Typically, we want to give seven to 14 days unless there's another reason to do longer than that, and here are the other reasons. Fungal gets two weeks. Staph aureus, the most common one, is a little complicated. We can do two weeks, as in this case, as long as none of these things are, are, are present. Uh, uh, no diabetes, they're not immunosuppressed, there's no prostheses and no metastatic infection. The TEE is negative, the blood cultures are negative within 72 hours, and the catheter has been pulled. All of those things have to be in place. Almost all of them are in place except for diabetes because diabetes is so common. That's often a reason we can't just do two weeks. If you can't do the two weeks for Saphorius, then you've got to do four to six weeks. Uh, if their blood cultures are positive more than 72 hours on treatment for any organism, we err on the side of saying, darn it, TEE is not perfect. Uh, let's treat for four to six weeks. Let's make sure it wasn't endocarditis. And then any metastatic infection, like endocarditis or uh, meningitis, makes it four to six-week treatment. And uh, osteomyelitis, we typically treat six to eight weeks for staph anyhow. So if osteomyelitis is the metastatic disease, we would treat for six to eight weeks. Okay, 45. 71-year-old man is admitted with fever and chills. Uh, off and on for two weeks. He denies other symptoms. He hasn't seen a physician for 20 years. He smokes. He drinks at least six beers a day. Temperature's 100.6. Pulse rate's 98. Respirations are 16. Blood pressure 160 over 95. He has conjunctival hemorrhages. He has Osler's nodes, which I think you can see here uh, on his uh, left little finger. Uh, and he has a grade 3 over 6 systolic crescendo, decrescendo murmur in the aortic area radiating to the carotids. He hasn't seen a doc in a while, so we don't know how long that's been there, but it's definitely there. Hemoglobin's 9.8. White count is uh, pretty normal. Platelets are normal. His urinalysis has 110 red cells and 10 white cells. Lights are normal. Blood cultures are sent off because of the uh, physical findings consistent with endocarditis. Uh, and sure enough, 3 out of 3 strep bobus. Uh, are present, which is now called uh, strep gallolyticus. Sorry, but uh, if you remember the strep bovis, that's great. Um, a transthoracic echo, which is the first thing that should be done, does show at 0.8 centimeter vegetation on the aortic valve. What exam would best reveal why he developed endocarditis? A chest x-ray, transesophageal echo, a CT scan, of the abdomen, a CT of the pelvis, or colonoscopy. Beautiful. 
Okay, so you're remembering the association of strep bovis, which has been renamed, uh, with uh, colon cancer. It also has a high association with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, so this, is, this was a fairly recent study that, uh, that and you've, already, you've already got this right, so I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. Uh, strep bovis bacteremia associated with colon carcinoma and endocarditis. It's, uh, there's a profound, not just a mild, a very profound association. It was a meta-analysis of 11 case series. Colon cancer in these patients that had bacteremia, strep bovis bacteremia, uh, uh, was seen in 38%. And there's a slight difference between the strep bovis type 1 and strep bovis type 2. Uh, and endocarditis uh, was seen uh, in 44% uh, uh, in of the patients out of the 344. So it's a very, very high correlation. Uh, and this gentleman hadn't seen, he hadn't had his colonoscopy when he was supposed to for prevention of colon cancer. So I'm glad you have this in your, in your head. The, the bugs have been, have been renamed, and uh, unfortunately, they were renamed over 10 years ago. So uh, I don't know what, if the boards is going to be nasty and, and say you should know these new names by now. So uh, Galaliticus uh, lutetiensis, uh, infantarius, and pasturianus. Yes, I'm trying to pronounce it as well as I can. <laughs> Okay, so uh, it's named after Pasteur, okay? The other bug, I'm spinning off of this because I don't want you to miss this question. The other bug that if you see it in the bloodstream, you should absolutely worry about GI malignancy is uh, Clostridium septicum. Uh, and here's the prevalence uh, of uh, Clostridium septicum, uh, uh, malignancies in Clostridium uh, septicum. Uh, this is the uh, number of patients with cancer uh, total versus uh, all the patients with Clostridium uh, septicum bacteremia. And it's 76% of people with this bug in their blood have a malignancy. And the mortality is 65%. The bacteria is pretty nasty, but a lot of these cancers were the cause of the death in these studies. So this is even more of an association than strep bovis. So glad you uh, had that, and I threw the uh, septicum in there to uh, add to the teaching. All right, 46. 27-year-old man presents to your student-run free clinic with a two-week history of low-grade fever and fatigue. Uh, he has a 3 over 10 new headache. Uh, he's homeless. HIV infection was diagnosed seven years ago. He's never been able to afford uh, the medications, so he says, and he's on no medications. Temperature's 100. Pulse rate 76. Respiration is 12, his blood pressure is kind of low, 90 over 60. Mental status is normal. We can see his, his fundi well, and they're fine. Neck is supple, no nodes. Uh, heart and lung and uh, abdomen are normal. Uh, hemoglobin is 9.8. MCV is 90. White count is 3.4. 80% uh, neutrophils and 9% lymphs. His platelets are a little low. Lights and creatinine are fine. What would you do next with this uh, gentleman? Uh, check his CD4, HIV viral load, and genotype, then come back in a week. We'll get the genotype back, and I want to start you on antiretrovirals. Do a head CT, do a lumbar puncture, do a chest X-ray, or get three blood cultures. So 
So head CT and lumbar puncture, very, very good. You're all suspecting, um, uh, yeah, I'll say, you're, you're all suspecting cryptococcal meningitis. I just want to make sure I wasn't asking another question about this. And the only decision point, and we went through this yesterday, do we need a CAT scan before we do the lumbar puncture? And remember, he's in one of the groups that we have to get an image first. He's immunocompromised. Uh, you can get cryptococcomas, which are big space-occupying lesions, yeah, and you do the lumbar puncture. It's never happened. You do the lumbar puncture, and they herniate. Uh, you can have a tuberculoma. Uh, yeah, in HIV-infected people, and they can hurt. So immunocompromised, we have to do that lumbar, uh, the CAT scan first, and then do the lumbar puncture. You all want to do the lumbar puncture, which is the right thing, and you're all realizing this new onset of a headache in an immunocompromised person, we have to worry about cryptococcus. And this is from one of the original studies out in San Francisco, but the disease hasn't changed. The manifestations of cryptococcal meningitis in an HIV-infected person. And one of the important points I want to make is they're very subtle, very subtle. We think of meningitis uh, like the, the college student we had yesterday, uh, onset of, of severe headache and stiff neck and fever, and the roommates bring you in in a day or two. This is a chronic meningitis. It sounds like an oxymoron, chronic infection of the meninges in the brain. How do you survive that? But the organism is not very virulent, uh, and uh, it slowly progresses to cause trouble. It causes a lot of trouble. So look at these symptoms, malaise. That's, tr that's half of... Uh, the uh, internal medicine textbook is malaise, right? Uh, headache, but it, remember, new headache should bother you. Fever is only seen in two-thirds, so one-third won't even have a fever. Nausea and vomiting, altered mental status is fairly uncommon, so meningitis, not encephalitis. And stiff neck is only one out of five. There's, no, there's not a lot of inflammation because there's not a lot of CD4 cells to cause inflammation that recognize the cryptococcal antigen. Uh, on signs, fever is, is found on, on measurement in the same percentage of patients, stiff neck the same percentage, and altered mental status, uh, and focal neurologic deficits in a small number. <clears throat> What's nice, and you know this, and that's why I, I checked to see, I didn't ask you this question, what the diagnostic test would be, the cryptococcal antigen is seen in the blood and the spinal fluid in over 90% of patients. Uh, so it's a very, very, very sensitive test, and it's 100% specific. Uh, the number of <coughs> uh, patients with uh, elevated white count uh, is about 79%, and the protein's elevated only in about half. So it's a very smoldering, smoldering meningitis. Uh, you may remember uh, <coughs> uh, the India Inc., a test which maybe your, your lab has a vial stowed away somewhere uh, along with the chlorinfenicol. Um, but uh, we don't use it anymore. Every lab knows how to use the cryptococcal antigen. And here's the sensitivity and specificity. It's really, really good. Culture is really good too, but it's a fungus, so it takes several days uh, to grow. It grows very well, usually, but it takes several days. Uh, in the blood or the CSF, and some people have argued why even tap them, uh, because the blood is positive with cryptococcal antigen. There's a definite reason to tap them, which uh, I'll talk to you about in a second. Uh, CT of the head was normal, so that was done first. CD4 count was only 5. HIV lo viral load was 100,000. Blood cultures were sent, which were eventually negative. Chest x-ray was normal. The lumbar puncture had an opening pressure of 270, 27 centimeters. White cells were 8. Uh, red cells were 0. 
but white cells of eight is not normal. Above five is not normal. Glucose was normal. Protein was a little elevated. And the cryptococcal antigen was, was, was sky high. So we made the diagnosis. So uh, how do you want to treat him? Fluconazole, itraconazole, amphotericin B, deoxycholate, liposomal amphotericin, or liposomal amphotericin B and 5-FC. <coughs> Great, the majority of you have it uh, correct. This is the one time we use 5-FC, 5-fluorocytosine. Um, and uh, the reason we do it is it, uh, uh, with respect to liposomal amphotericin alone, it more rapidly decreases the fungal burden in the central uh, nervous system, which theoretically and probably uh, decreases the morbidity and mortality from the disease. <clears throat> So here's the uh, treatment for cryptococcal meningitis. It's, it's almost like the treatment of a hematologic malignancy. There's an induction and consolidation and a maintenance phase. We give what most of you wanted, amphotericin B and 5-FC. And the important thing is we must tap these people, not just for the diagnosis. We want to uh, repeat lumbar punctures to, uh, to get the opening pressure down to normal. One of the sources of morbidity in these patients uh, is increased intracranial pressure. The organism cakes up against the arachnoid villi and causes a, a communicating hydrocephalus. It can actually cause a non-communicating hydrocephalus by sticking in the, uh, the aqueduct of Silvius as well. But it cakes up against the arachnoid villi, so they get increased intracranial pressure, and sometimes we have to tap them once or more times a day to get their CSF back down to normal, uh, opening pressure back down to normal. After two weeks, they almost always respond, and then we can switch to the less toxic things like an azole, and fluconazole is just fine, at a high dose, 400 milligrams, and then back off to maintenance for at least a year uh, with fluconazole at a low dose, a lower dose, 200 milligrams a day. Um, <clears throat> once the CD4 count gets above 100, people usually don't relapse, uh, and if it's been a year of, of maintenance therapy, we can stop and just watch the patient. All right, 47. Uh, a 47-year-old uh, man presents to the emergency department with a fever and shortness of breath for two days. Uh, he was a recipient of a living donor renal transplant five months ago. The donor was CMV IgG antibody positive uh, and had antibody negativity for HIV, toxo, HSV, and varicella zoster. Uh, his RPR and PPD were non-reactive, and he had not, tra not traveled outside of the U.S. That's the donor. The patient had uh, negative antibody for CMV, HSV, VZV, HIV, and his RPR and IGRA for TB were negative. Current medications are trimethoprim sulfa, mycophenolate, tacrolimus, and valgancyclovir. Uh, so uh, here he is, this transplant recipient with shortness of breath for a couple of days. Temperature is 101, pulse rate is 102, respirations are 20, blood pressure 100 over 68, uh, and the uh, 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 SpO2 uh, is uh, down to 88. Uh, lungs have diffuse scattered rowels with bronchial breath sounds, and his heart, abdomen, and neurologic exams are normal. Hemoglobin is 9.8, white count is 6.4, 
Uh, it's got 88% neutrophils, only 7% lymphs. Platelets are fine. Lights are normal. Creatinine is his baseline of 1.8. Urinalysis is normal, but his chest X-ray uh, certainly is not. And this is what his image looked like. He receives oxygen. Uh, and uh, what is the next step in treating this uh, immunocompromised person, transplant recipient, uh, with a pretty good pneumonia going on? Blood for bacterial, mycobacterial, viral, and fungal culture. Sputum for bacterial, mycobacterial, viral, and fungal culture. Blood for viral and fungal serologies. Or obtain lung tissue for histology and culture. <clears throat> All right, that's, that's fine. Uh, we're not transplant doctors. We're, most of us are not ID doctors, and we're certainly not transplant ID doctors. But the management, the management of, of the immunocompromised uh, host uh, with a pulmonary infection post-transplant is, is the concept I want to get at. And good, we'll, we'll, we'll all learn something from this, from this case. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, sorry, the answer is D. I, I, Keep doing that where I'm not giving you the answer right away. I'm working back around it. So the answer is D, uh, be invasive in these people. And I'll talk to you about why in a second. So if they give you a post-transplant infection, which is quite likely that they will, the, the general principles, the timing after transplant is helpful in predicting what the organism is. And I'll walk through that with you. Uh, remember that these are immunosuppressed people, so their signs and symptoms are muted which is why we have to have high indices of suspicion and be aggressive in getting tissue and tissue cultures. Uh, altered anatomy can mess things up. A transplanted kidney is not in the same place as the native kidney was. Uh, so uh, the pyelonephritis will not have pain in the flank. It'll have it in, in the uh, area where the transplant is in the front. Uh, and the exam gets altered. Antibiotic resistance is more common. By definition, they've been in the hospital and they've been exposed to antibiotics before, two of the biggest risk factors for antibiotic resistance. And they may have, just like any immunosuppressed patient, more than one pathogen at a time. Uh, the diagnosis can be made by cultures uh, uh, from uh, tissues that are involved, antigen detection, but usually requires a biopsy, as, we, as I wanted you to, to learn in this case. Serologies are usually not helpful. Serologies tell us past infection, and they often can't mount an acute response to anything because they're immunosuppressed, so we can't, and we don't have time to wait for a fourfold rise in serology, so they're often not useful. So if they give you someone who's a transplant recipient, and they've gotten their transplant within the last month, there's two sources now of the, uh, of the organism that they want you to think about. One uh, is it came from the, uh, it, 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 the recipient is the, is the reason that it's there. It's not their fault, but it's the reason it's there. Just like any surgical patient, they can have a surgical site infection. They've had lines. They can get healthcare-associated pneumonia or a urinary tract infection, especially if they had a renal transplant. The immunosuppression can reactivate hepatitis B and C, but all these patients nowadays are being tested for this. And they've all gotten antibiotics, so they all could, are at risk for C. difficile. And strongyloides, if they have been in an endemic area, which is not the United States, can reactivate and cause overwhelming infection. It's the only parasite that can complete its entire life cycle within the human and have strongyloides hyperinfection syndrome. Or it can be from the donor, and we screen the donors very well 
They're screened for HSV, CMV, and HIV and syphilis. I'll talk a little more about CMV in a second. Uh, they are often not screened for VRE and MRSA. Uh, fungi, if they comes if coming from the, don the, the donor, can be resistant candida species. And toxo can quietly be in the donor uh, and be transmitted by tissue. Uh, toxo infects any nucleated cell in the body and, and usually is asymptomatic in immunocompetent patients. If you're out one to six months now, the immunosuppression that the patient has been receiving becomes the reason for the infection. So they get opportunistic infections, just like the HIV-infected patient. They get pneumocystis uterovice pneumonia. Um, they may get other fungi, endemic fungi, depending on if they live in the coxy area or the histo and blasto area. They may reactivate viral infections that they never even knew they had, HSV, silent infection with HSV. CMV, most of the time when we get it, it's, it's asymptomatic. Uh, the BK virus or the JC virus, which I gave you a case of earlier, uh, the PML case. Mycobacteria can reactivate. We do IGRAs on everybody or at least uh, uh, TB skin tests, but they're not 100% sensitive. And then parasitic diseases, toxo. We talked about crypto and microspermium yesterday. They're prophylaxed during this period against these with trimethoprim sulfa and with valgancyclovir, which are very good prophylactic drugs, and this patient was taking. Community-acquired infections. This is, uh, these start to occur after six months. They've made the cut. They went through the one-month period post-op and didn't get anything from the donor or the surgical site. And they've, they've tolerated the immunosuppression without reactivating anything one to six months out. So now after six months, we worry about regular old community-acquired pneumonia. You just happen to get pneumococcal pneumonia because you're out in the community, and that's where pneumococcal pneumonia occurs. However, viruses can latent, late, uh, latently uh, become uh, an active infection late uh, in, after immunosuppression. CMV and HSV are typical we start to run into the post-transplant uh, lymphoproliferative diseases from EBV. BK can come and, and PML can come later too. And then some of the nastier fungi, aspergillus and mucor, uh, can rear their heads as well. And a couple of trivial bacteria. So zeroing in on this patient, <clears throat> post-transplant pneumonia. Rapidly progressive causes, this patient. And these are the ones that scare us and make us go to, as was the right answer in this case, Biopsy, biopsy, biopsy. I need to know now. I can't wait for cultures. I can't trust serologies in these people. A usual bacterial pathogens are the most common cause, pneumococcus uh, being the most common. But then nocardia, legionella, and rhodococcus. These require cell-mediated immunity to be fought off, and they're not fought off well in immunosuppressed patients. Pneumocystis, uh, aspergillus and cryptococcus, the fungal uh, uh, pathogens and the endemic ones, and then the viruses that I just talked to you about can be rapidly progressive in people. And the serostatus, and I don't want to get too complicated, but this is per fairly simple transplant science. Uh, the serostatus of the donor uh, and the recipient are very useful in predicting the risk of getting CMV uh, pneumonia, which is actually what this case was, CMV pneumonia uh, post-transplant. If the uh, donor serostatus is positive and the recipient serostatus is positive, uh, then the, uh, the, uh, there's a 50% risk of reactivation 
of, uh, of, sorry, of infection with CMV in the patient. In, as in this patient, if the donor is positive and the recipient is negative, the recipient has never smelled CMV and has no innate immunity to it, 75% risk of reactivation. We try to get donors that are seronegative, but if we can't, we still do the transplant. We don't deny them the organ just because we can't find someone who's CMV seronegative. If the serostatus is CMV negative, but the, don the recipient is positive, it's 20% risk. And the perfect world is the donor didn't have CMV ever, the recipient didn't have CMV ever, and then the CMV risk is very, very low because it would have to be acquired after the transplant occurred. So zeroing in, finally, final, finalizing this patient, CMV in the immunosuppressed host, the CMV uh, uh, stays latent in lymphocytes and can reactivate anywhere it wants to. It loves to do so in the lung and the eye, but also in the GI tract, esophagitis, enteritis, and colitis. Uh, and unfortunately, it can, it can reactivate. All the herpes viruses are neurotropic, reactivated in the brain and the meninges and even in the spinal cord. The diagnosis, uh, there's a little bit, bit of a tricky caveat here. You're, you're probably used to sending off blood for CMV, PCR, to see if it's in the bloodstream if you take care of hospitalized patients. That's great to show CMV viremia, but it doesn't necessarily diagnose that there's an infected organ because CMV is latent in lymphocytes and the PCR, therefore, can be positive in people that just have circulating CMV without disease from it. So we need to prove that the CMV is in an organ before we say, you have a CMV disease. Uh, the cultures indicate infection, but not disease, as I just said, but tissue uh, is what we like to get. The problem with getting tissue uh, one of the problems with getting tissue cultures is if you're viremic at the time of the biopsy, you bleed at the time of the biopsy, and it's a false positive. But that's okay. We'll overtreat a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> uh, and the, the cultures to grow CMV take time. Serology is not useful because of the immunosuppression. So the best thing is to get tissue biopsy. We'll send it for culture. It's going to take some time, and it might be a false positive. But to look for inclusions that day to look for the OLI inclusions of CMV, and the pathologist says there's CMV in that lung, and we can comfortably treat the patient for that. So that's a whirlwind tour of the, maybe the one or two questions you'll have on transplant uh, recipients. 38-year-old man presents with a fever for four days and a rash for two days. He's had malaise for a week. Uh, the rash began on his uh, face, uh, uh, progressed to his neck and upper trunk uh, yesterday, and I will show you his rash in a second, uh, and now involves most of his body. He has burning in his eyes and a runny nose. He works as a ride attendant at Disneyland. I'm really bad at poker. Uh, he is on no medications and is otherwise healthy, which he attributes to his parents refusing to vaccinate him as a child. Okay. Physical exam, 103.6, pulse rate 126, mild bulbar conjunctivitis bilateral. I'll show you a, a, a picture of his whole body in a sec. Swollen nasal mucosa, throat's normal, tiny axillary and subclavicular uh, uh, sub, uh, adenopathy. And here he is, okay? All right, there's that rash. Uh, and remember, he said it started on the face and progressed down the, down the neck. I'm sorry, I need the arrow. And now it's started to spot his, uh, his uh, trunk here. Okay. What is your uh, presumptive diagnosis? 
Rubiola, measles, very good. And I'm glad you recognize that because you may not have seen cases because we do vaccinate most people, and it, uh, but there are uh, recurrent outbreaks and they want us to know about these things. So uh, here's the epidemiology really quickly because you may not have seen cases. The only reservoir uh, <coughs> of rubiola is humans, which is why there's been for decades an attempt to eradicate it like we've done with smallpox from our species, uh, but we've been unsuccessful. It's very infectious. It's airborne spread. Uh, and in the pre-vaccine era, this, just to remind you how infectious it was, 90% of people by the age of 15 said, oh, yeah, I had measles. And we used to say that about chickenpox as well. It's a 75% contact attack rate, so in household uh, contacts. Uh, and in the pre-vaccine era, there were 4 million cases a year. The vaccine came out in 1968, well before most of you in this room were born. Uh, and uh, in 1990, uh, there was an epidemic uh, of 27,000 cases uh, occurred. Uh, so, but but the, compared to the 4 million, that was nothing. Uh, and in the 21st century, there's about 60 cases a year. So that's how uncommon this is. But it has a very, very classic presentation. It's a black and white striped zebra. Uh, here is that l a little bit of an outbreak uh, which, and I use this case, this is a true case, but I didn't see this patient because he was in California. Um, uh, uh, there was an outbreak in, in California uh, that uh, was highlighted by the CDC. It reminds us that there are still uh, areas where immunization may not prevent by herd immunity. Uh, the incubation period is one to three weeks, and there's a prodrome of an upper respiratory infection that's usually fairly mild, and conjunctivitis is very common. And then the exanthem begins just as it did in this gentleman. Uh, their people are contagious four days on either side of the rash. So they're contagious sometimes a day before they even get sick. And they're definitely contagious when they're touching their nose and wiping their nose because of the uh, coryza that they're having. It's a maculopapular rash that starts in the face and, the, and then goes down the neck into the trunk. There's often lymphadenopathy. And there's these coplic spots, which look like little canker sores, but they're not painful uh, at all. Uh, in an uncomplicated case, they get better in about two weeks, and the cough often uh, takes several weeks to go away. <clears throat> there can be some other organ involvement, the GI tract, pneumonia, and the ears. And this is why, really the reason why uh, the um, uh, vaccination campaign went forward. The, the disease uh, is self-limited. It, it does take uh, time to get better, and people miss school, and they look horrible. But the neurologic consequences can be, they're rare, but they can be devastating. One in a thousand get encephalitis, but then there's this acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which the incidence is not actually clear what it is, um, but it's an autoimmune response that's triggered by the virus. The virus is now gone. Um, but it uh, leads to uh, a lot of residual neurologic deficit, and one out of five and one out of ten kids uh, die from this, and this is in the pre-vaccine era. And then there's uh, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is one in 100,000, which is a, a disaster. It's uh, theorized to be a variant, a variant virus, um, and it's 100% mortality. Um, so it's, it's worth vaccinating everybody to prevent these neurologic sequelae. 
Uh, the diagnosis is clinical. There are PCRs available, but they're usually not routinely available in most places. And prevention uh, is the, the key with the vaccine. Uh, I don't do PEDS, but those of you who do, you know, the initial dose is at 10 to 15 months and then a second dose uh, at least a month later before the age of four. And it's over 95% uh, effective. Uh, and uh, there's lifelong immunity. There's also lifelong immunity if you get the disease uh, uh, naturally. And there's no antiviral treatment available. Okay. 49. 74-year-old <clears throat> woman presents to the emergency department in January. 36 hours of fever, productive cough, shortness of breath. She's hypertensive. Uh, she sees her internist regularly. She has no known lung or heart disease. She received her influenza vaccine last November. Uh, now it's uh, January. Uh, and she's gotten both of the pneumococcal vaccines. Five days ago, she visited her four-month-old grandson who had the flu, she says, the flu. Her temperature is 102.6, pulse rate 115, respiration is 22. Uh, her PO2 is 94%. She's alert and in mild respiratory distress. Uh, H-E-N-T and neck are normal, heart and lung, abdomen are normal. Lungs have diffuse rolls and wheezes uh, present. Hemoglobin is 13.8, white count is 11 with a normal differential, platelets are fine. Uh, even, even though she had the flu vaccine, you know, it's not 100% affected, we did a rapid antigen detection for influenza, and it was a negative. And here's her chest x-ray, showing diffuse bilateral infiltrates. What diagnostic test would you do next on her? Secretions for adenovirus antigen, secretions for RSV, uh, uh, by PCR, sputum for viral cultures, serology for mycoplasma, or blood for CMV. <clears throat> Wonderful. Okay, good. So you're recognizing uh, RSV uh, occurring during the flu season, which uh, I guess I don't need to teach most of you this, is incredibly common and, and, and very commonly missed. Uh, and here's the, uh, a little bit on RSV. Uh, it peaks just like influenza. It likes to peak in the winter, January and February, and just like influenza, it's, it's transmitted by secretions and fomites. And just like influenza, it bothers the extremes of age uh, the most. Um, we usually get infection with RSV very early on in life, but unfortunately, immunity wanes with time. Uh, there are several strains of RSV, but uh, even if we get all three of them, it wanes. The incubation period is four to six days, and it presents with a lot of bronchitis and bronchospasm and wheezing, and can be actually a pneumonia. Rapid antigen detection is a way to diagnose it. Uh, ribavirin is used if, uh, in immunocompromised patients, but the data is kind of uh, sketchy, uh, and we don't use it in uh, non-immunocompromised patients. But here's, and I'll do this quickly because you've, you've got this. This is a great study that reminded us of the frequency of this. This was a study, uh, a prospective study over four winters, and, and they had three cohorts of adults. They had elderly adults uh, over 65, they had younger than 65 adults, but they were at risk because they had cardiopulmonary disease. 
And then they had uh, uh, hospitalized uh, adults with acute cardiopulmonary disease. And they tested every single one of these people in the cohort for, uh, by PCR for influenza and RSV, and also tried to culture it and did serology on them. So they did every methodology possible to see who had influenza and who uh, had RSV during these winters. And uh, here are, are the results. In the elderly people, versus the influenza versus RSV was the same percentage. The at-risk people, the younger than 65 but had comorbid diseases, pretty similar, and actually RSV was a little more common. And in people hospitalized with a flu-like illness, again, almost the same prevalence. So if you have a, during the winter, you have an influenza-looking person who tests negative for influenza, as you all, almost all of you got, RSV is by far the next most common thing. We don't have a treatment like we do for uh, uh, influenza. All right, 50. <clears throat> We're almost there, almost the finish line. 28-year-old man comes to your neighborhood free clinic complaining of fever for five days, sore throat for three days, and two days of a rash. He feels tired and his muscles ache. He's a heroin user and has had episodic bisexual unprotected sex. His last partner was three weeks ago. He said he tested negative for HIV and syphilis two months ago. His temperature is 102.2, uh, pulse rate is 112, respirations are 16, blood pressure is 90 over 60. H-E-N-T, uh, he has pharyngeal erythema without an exudate. His neck has several tiny supraclavicular nodes and also bilateral axillary nodes in uh, his axilla. Heart, lungs, and the abdomen are normal. Uh, here's his uh, rash. Okay, and you can see, uh, I think you can see better than I can on this monitor, it's maculopapular uh, rash uh, diffusely. Uh, hemoglobin is 13.8, MCV 94. White counts 4.4, 78% neutrophils, 11% lymphs, 3% eosinophils, platelets are fine. Lights, LFTs, and, and creatinine are all normal. Which test is most likely to be diagnostic in this gentleman? RPR, EBV, uh, Capsid, uh, IgM, CMV, IgM, parvovirus, or HIV viral load? Very good. So you're recognizing the primary HIV infection uh, or acute retroviral syndrome. And let me review that with you. Uh, retrospectively, uh, and I, I throw myself in this group, we missed this for a long time. 90% of people with HIV will have had this syndrome with careful questioning and serologic testing. Uh, so it is the rule of an HIV, newly infected HIV patient that they have this. The incubation period for having this is usually two to four weeks after the exposure. In this patient, it, it, there was the option of sexual exposure as well as IV drug use as the cause. And it lasts for quite some time. It's not a fleeting three-day illness. It's two to four weeks. The manifestations are kind of like a mono syndrome, although there's usually not an exudate of pharyngitis. Fever, lymph nodes, pharyngitis, rash, myalgias and arthralgias, and occasionally uh, they have a little bit of an atypical lymphocytosis. Uh, 
The diagnosis, and I, I've been burned by this before, there, it's too early for them to have HIV antibody. They, they haven't created that yet. That takes too long to, to happen. Their viral load is there. The virus is there before the antibody response in the bloodstream. So the correct test, uh, as many of you answered, is to look for uh, the, either a P24 antigen, which is one of the antigens on the HIV, uh, or just a viral load uh, by a PCR. The treatment, remember we treat everybody with HIV, we certainly treat uh, uh, people with acute retroviral syndrome or primary HIV infection because it lessens the risk of them getting opportunistic infections later on. And you can actually prevent them from getting opportunistic infections. A little bit about HIV diagnosis. We're coming back around to HIV. Just a couple of things have changed uh, uh, that I want you to be aware of. We're now, we now have incredibly sensitive assays uh, for uh, PCR. Uh, this one is, may not be available everywhere, but the routine uh, PCR assays can detect up to 50, as low as 50 copies uh, per ml, and now there's ones that correct, uh, can detect up to one to five copies. So they can determine whether you're HIV infected within five days of the exposure. So someone comes to you and says, a week ago I was with this person and I don't know, blah, blah, blah. You can test them with this high uh, uh, efficiency assay uh, and uh, let them know that they're infected at that time. We're, we're supposed to be, as of 2014, uh, using uh, the uh, fourth generation HIV assays. And this is definitely testable because um, uh, it's a new methodology. And you may not be familiar with it if you're used to the old technology where we would do the HIV antibody first and then consider the antigen and things like that. It's kind of a clever idea. And it's based on the fact that why not look for the antibody and the antigen at the same time? So we'll detect acute infection, antigen positive, antibody negative, right away. And why not look for HIV-1 and HIV-2? Now, there's no endemic HIV-2 in the United States, but the world is a small place, and people travel, and people come, uh, leave this country, and people come to this country, and it, it's going to get here sooner or later. And we want to protect the blood supply. So the clever idea is if you send uh, the, this uh, test on the boards, uh, if they offer you the fourth generation assay. What you're sending off is the lab is going to, it's, it's one big test glom together. It's going to look for a positive HIV-1 antibody, HIV-2 antibody, HIV-1 antigen, and HIV-2 antigen all at once. And it'll say positive or negative. If it's positive, then the lab will say, okay, uh, what, uh, what made this test turn positive? Uh, which of these, and sometimes it could be more than one, made it turn positive. So then they will specifically test for HIV-1 antibody and HIV-2 antibody, and you can walk through this and come to the right conclusions. If the HIV antibody 1 was the reason it turned positive and 2 is negative, they have chronic HIV infection, HIV-1 infection. If antibody to 2 is positive but 1 is negative, they have chronic HIV-2 infection. If both are positive... Boy, they've been infected with both viruses because there's very little cross-reactivity. And if HIV-1 is negative and HIV-2 antibody is negative, why did the test turn positive? It must be the antigen is what turned it positive because we're looking for the antibody and the antigen. So then they will test the patient for HIV-1 antigen and HIV-2 antigen. And whichever one of those, usually not going to be both, is positive, then you've diagnosed acute infection with HIV-1 or 2. If both the antigens are negative, the test was a false positive, which is very, very rare. 
So if you can walk through that, it's, it's pretty intuitive, then you'll understand uh, why now we just test for antigen and antibody, and then the lab, if it's positive, figures out which one turned the test positive. Uh, just to review sore throat and rash, I wanted to uh, walk you through that because there are very common questions on that. There's some non-infectious diseases which are not part of uh, uh, my purview here. But the infectious diseases uh, that cause sore throat and rash. Now, this is an exudative pharyngitis, which we did yesterday. This is sore throat and a rash. And I just remember, it's my own uh, uh, acronym, but, uh, SHAME, S-H-A-M-E, and then a CT on the end. And these are the causes of fever and a rash. We just did HIV. Uh, group A strep can cause, we talked about rheumatic fever, but remember, uh, it can cause scarlet fever uh, if uh, uh, it's infected uh, with uh, a virus that codes for the scarlet fever toxin, and they get a diffuse erythematous uh, sandpaper uh, feeling to their skin, uh, and that's because the toxin dilates all the capillaries at the base of the hair cells. And so when you run your hand over it, wherever there's a hair, cell, hair follicle, uh, it's raised. Uh, and that's why they also get bruising in, uh, in areas where the skin uh, rubs against each other uh, and they get a petechial formation. Arcanobacterium is a pediatric uh, bug that causes pharyngitis and a rash. Mycoplasma pneumonia can cause erythema multiforme. So if you have someone with pneumonia, sore throat, and a rash on the exam and erythema tar target lesions, uh, think of mycoplasma. EBV, about 20% of patients will have a rash. And if you give them ampicillin, 90% will have a rash. Coxsackie virus has, uh, can have uh, a uh, vesicular rash, hand, foot, and mouth disease, and uh, vesicles in the throat. And toxic shock syndrome, the first case that I gave you, can have a pharyngeal rash. Here's scarlet fever um, in a uh, young boy. Um, and you can see the erythematous uh, areas here. Uh, here's the sandpaper appearance. You, can, you don't have to feel this. You can see it. Every hair follicle uh, has a little bit of a bump on it. And this is posteous sign. In places where there's friction, because the capillaries are dilated there, they break open very easily. A, a sore throat uh, with a strawberry tongue, if they give you that, uh, there's only three things uh, that do it. It can, it can be a white strawberry, uh, scarlet fever, or a red strawberry. Uh, but uh, it's a strawberry tongue can be seen there. And I'm not going to talk to you about Kawasaki's because that's peds. Uh, this is uh, mycoplasma, uh, erythema multiforme, in a, a young man who had uh, mycoplasma pneumonia. Uh, which greatly facilitated their making the diagnosis. And this is the infectious mononucleosis rash. This is seen in about 20% of people. It's a nonspecific maculopapular rash. And this was a, a woman who had been given ampicillin. Uh, and it's interesting, we talked about this yesterday. The heterophile antibody is positive 80% of the time. Uh, if you give ampicillin to people uh, with EBV, that's positive 90% of the time you get a rash. It's a better test than doing the mono, not recommended, but it's a better test than doing the uh, monospot test. Uh, so if you make that mistake, you say, oh, strep throat, I think, I don't know, I'm giving you ampicillin, they come back with a rash two to three days later, remember it might have been EBV. All right, that was a lot of stuff just based on that one case. We'll finish up with the last four cases. 57-year-old man is referred to you from the ENT clinic after undergoing a biopsy for suspected head and neck cancer. 
He presented with a two-month history of progressive painless swelling uh, of his right jaw. Uh, he has poor dental hygiene uh, and uh, diabetes, and he smoked for 40 years, and that's a part of the reason that ENT was so concerned. Uh, here he is, and I think, uh, I think you can see the asymmetry and the swelling here. Uh, that was the reason for the biopsy. Uh, we got a call from the surgeons uh, because this is what the biopsy showed uh, on uh, uh, Gramstein. <clears throat> okay, let me get you to the question. What antibiotic would you recommend? Penicillin, trimethoprim sulfa, levofloxacin, metronidazole, or fluconazole? Okay, so plurality was penicillin, and some are using trimethoprim sulfa. Uh, so uh, the correct answer is penicillin, uh, and the reason is is that that those branching uh, organisms that look like fungi but they're really bacteria are uh, Actinomyces israeli, and this is the lumpy jaw uh, presentation. It's very often, and actually most of the cases I've seen are initially thought to be a malignancy. Uh, part of the reason is that people with poor dental hygiene uh, and uh, smoking and alcohol use are at higher risk for ENT malignancies. Those are also risk factors for actinomyces. Uh, actinomyces is normal flora of the mouth. It lives in the anaerobic crevices in the mouth. Uh, and the better your dental hygiene is, the lower the inoculum it is. But if there's poor dental hygiene, it can invade. Uh, and it's an anaerobe, so it requires uh, being hidden underneath the surface. Um, it's also present in the gut in very small amounts, can occasionally be a problem after rupture of a, 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 a appendix, a rupture of a bowel elsewhere. And there's the other syndrome that they'll want you to recognize, the, the woman um, uh, with PID who's had an IUD in and develops PID refractory to the usual treatment, uh, then uh, suspect actinomyces. So the clinical manifestations I've already mentioned. Diagnosis is made by gram stain. It's very easily gram stainable. It looks like a fungus, a gram positive, but it is a bacteria in culture. And the treatment, it's never learned how to get resistance. So the treatment is high doses of penicillin, not trimethoprim sulfa, but penicillin, and doxycycline and clinomycin can be used in panallergic patients. <clears throat> 37-year-old man presents to the clinic with a 10-day history of a new right-sided headache, weakness of his left arm and greater, greater than the left leg, and sleepiness. In order to mild cough and a little bit of dyspnea on exertion, he ascribes to a severe persistent asthma for which he takes uh, albuterol and salmeterol, and he's been on 40 milligrams of prednisone a day for as long as he can remember. He's never been tested for HIV or tuberculosis. Physical exam, low, uh, no fever, 99.8, respiratory rate 88, uh, sorry, pulse rate 88, respiratory rate 20, blood pressure is fine, and he's adding at 95%. He's lethargic, uh, along with these other neurologic deficits, and he does have uh, weakness in both the upper and the lower left extremities. Um, lungs have decreased breast sounds in the right upper lobe. Heart and lung and the abdomen examiner normal. So here's his uh, chest x-ray. Uh, which correlated with our physical findings. 
Uh, and here's his C, uh, 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 lung exam, and here's his CT, which correlates with his uh, neurologic findings. He started on INH rifampin and pyrazinamide, which uh, uh, you probably all would have done given that right upper lobe uh, lesion and this cavitary lesion in the brain. Uh, but his interferon gamma releasing assay is negative. We also did an HIV antibody test. The sputum was negative for AFBN three times. Uh, yeah, the neurosurgeons were reluctant to do an aspirate of this uh, lesion, so we did a BAL uh, of the lung. Uh, and this is what the BAL showed. Uh, and this is uh, the gram stain, so you can see these gram-positive organisms uh, kind of beaded uh, here. What antibiotic would you recommend? Penicillin? Vancomycin and metronidazole, trimethoprim sulfa and imipenem, fluconazole, liposomal amphotericin B. Uh, the majority of you, trimethoprim sulfa and imipenem, very good. That's the uh, correct answer. You may remember that trimethoprim sulfa is uh, commonly used to treat this organism, which is nocardia. Uh, but there is some uh, increased resistance, uh, not high level, but increased resistance to trimethoprim sulfa. So it's recommended for severe disease, and he's got brain infection, uh, to give uh, imipenem. So a little bit about nocardia. Uh, it's kind of the, they're really not related, but it's kind of the cousin of actinomyces. It's gram-positive branching chains that look like fungi, but it's the aerobe. It's the aerobic cousin. Uh, it's never, unlike actinomyces, it's never normal flora. Uh, so if you get nocardia in a BAL, if you get actino in a BAL, you don't know did it come from the mouth or not, but if you get nocardia in a BAL or a sputum or any aspirate from anywhere, it's always a pathogen. Um, 70% of patients uh, have a compromised cell-mediated immunity, but, but the other third, we don't understand why, but they get uh, nocardia infection. It loves the CNS and the lungs, and both were infected in this patient, but it can also cause cutaneous lesions, kind of like fungal lesions, little volcanic lesions. Diagnosed by Gram-Stain Culture, trimethoprim sulfa for mild disease, but for severe disease, you add uh, imipenem. Uh, so here, just a little review of these two organisms, which we probably learned kind of together in microbiology uh, in the same lecture. At least that's what I remember. All right, last two cases. Uh, a 38-year-old uh, man presents with a five-day history of nasal congestion, temperature to 100.5, and non-purulent nasal discharge. He's otherwise healthy and on no medications. Uh, temperature is 100.9, pulse is 98, no conjunctivitis, and his uh, uh, TMs are normal, tepanic membranes are normal. Nasal mucosa is inflamed, no purulence is noted, throat and neck are normal, and heart, lungs, and abdomen are normal. Uh, what would you uh, do next for him? Uh, nasal saline, uh, and return if, in five days if you get worse or you're no better. Prescribe trimethoprim sulfa, prescribe amoxicillin clavulanate, prescribe levofloxacin, or let's get an image and see what's going on. Get a CT scan of your sinuses.
Okay, nasal saline and come back if you're worse or in five days. Very good. That's the correct answer. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about this very common outpatient uh, uh, entity, rhinosinusitis. Uh, we, we overuse antibiotics. We've talked about this before, and you knew this, for upper respiratory infections. Uh, and the IDSA really wants us to uh, back off on this and only use it when bacterial infection is likely. So when are the symptoms of sinusitis with congestion, sometimes facial pain and things like that, uh, uh, maxillary tooth pain, when are they suggestive of bacterial infection and therefore physicians should be giving uh, antibacterials? Uh, there's three uh, indications that you should keep in mind. One is they're persistent and not improving, but the cutoff is 10 days, and that's why all of you who got this correctly recognize that. You have to sit on your hands for 10 days before you write that prescription for antibiotics because viral rhinocytositis, which is much more common than bacterial, that's a typical course is to run about seven to eight days before people get better. Uh, if you use that cutoff, uh, uh, sinus puncture studies have shown uh, that 60% of people, if you're symptomatic after 10 days still, will have bacterial infection. Uh, if it's severe during the course of the infection, if it's severe for more, three or more days, what do they mean severe? High-grade fever, greater than 102, or purulent drainage. Remember the woman with IgA deficiency yesterday? She had purulent drainage coming out of her nose. Or if you get facial pain, uh, that's a sign of maxillary sinusitis. Double sickening is the term that was coined for this. And what that means is during the course of the disease, after three days, there's now a new onset. You started getting sick, and then there's a new onset of a headache, or now there's a new onset of a discharge that wasn't there before. That's a sign of a bacterial, it's probably a super infection after a viral uh, insult that shut off the meatus to the sinus, and now the normal flora that's colonizing uh, uh, is starting to grow and thrive in there. So those are the indications for antibacterial therapy. Uh, there's plenty of literature during the eras where sinus punctures were done to make the diagnosis that gives us the bacteriology that we need to know to know what the antibiotics should be to treat if they do fall into one of those categories to treat. Uh, and Streptococcus pneumonia and Haemophilus influenza are the most likely organism. Probably H. flu is overrepresented here because uh, the, in a lot of these studies, the H. flu vaccine was not being given routinely. But Streptococcus pneumonia, just like for pneumonia, is still the most common organism, just like for meningitis is the most common organism. <coughs> so if they fall into one of those categories that you do want to give antibiotics to, how do you decide what antibiotic to give on the exam? You decide, what are, are, they, are, are they at risk for resistant uh, organisms, meaning resistant to the first-line drug that we're going to give in, in just a second? And who, who is at risk? People at the extremes of age, less than two, which won't be on your boards, but greater than 65 will be. People <coughs> that are exposed to daycare, uh, that are exposed to children in a daycare center, People that have got antibiotics in the last month, so they got uh, some drug for a urinary tract, a quinolone for a urinary tract infection recently. They've been hospitalized for five days. People with heart or lung disease and, as a common theme, immunocompromised patients. So if they're not in any of those categories on their last slide and they've been sick for 10 days or have double sickening or have severe disease, the drug of choice is amoxicillin clavulanate, first-line drug. <coughs> If it's 
uh, a, uh, if there's a reason to be concerned uh, about resistance, then give a second-line drug. Doxycycline and fluoroquinolone are the second-line drugs. If the reason you're worried about resistance is prior exposure to an antibiotic, then don't give one of these if this was the prior antibiotic. We are not supposed to use, because they are not as effective as they should be against the typical pathogens, macrolides, trimethoprim sulfa, or cephalosporins. Uh, so try and avoid those and don't get tricked to answering those on the examination. Adjunctive treatment, what to do and not to do. Uh, intranasal saline, which is part of the correct answer, is absolutely appropriate and helps clear the secretions and relieve symptoms. Intranasal steroids should not be used. We don't like to give steroids for an infection unless there's a suspected allergic etiology. And if people don't get better on antibiotics, that should be suspected that they have allergic rhinosinusitis. No benefit to giving decongestants and antihistamines, even though there's three uh, aisles of these at any, at any place that you go to to buy over the counter. They do not have any benefit in the treatment of rhinosinusitis. How long to treat? And then we'll finish up with our last case. Uh, if they improve, if they get better on schedule, which the majority will do after three to five days, then you can stop at five to seven days if you gave a first-line drug, amoxicillin clavulanate. Uh, it's not clear that you can go that short with the other second-line drugs, so then we go to seven to ten days. And here's the final uh, teaching point. If they don't get better or they worsen over three to five days, now you start to worry a little bit. You broaden the coverage or switch coverage so you can switch to a second-line drug or add a second-line drug. And if they still don't get better, now we have to start using other resources. Consider a non-infectious etiology. Maybe they have Wegner's. Maybe they have uh, polyangiitis with granulomatosis. Uh, maybe they, they do have allergic rhinosinusitis. Get an image to see, make sure that there's no obstructive disease or abscess formation that's causing the problem. And this is when we get our ENT colleagues to go in. They don't do sinus punctures anymore, uh, but they can do meatal cultures for us uh, with um, uh, very, very high yield uh, of getting uh, the organism for us. And occasionally you find uh, uh, amoxicillin clavulinate uh, resistant pneumococcus uh, in the cultures. We don't want to get images. That was part of one of the distractors in the question. We don't want to get images right away. And the reason is, that viral rhinocytositis looks horrible on the images, and it makes us over-treat people. This was a, a, a case of a rhinovirus rhinocytositis. Look how horrible the sinuses are uh, looking in this. And you can't use the CT scan to help you decide whether it's bacterial uh, or viral. And this was a nice study that looked at people who got a... Uh, uh, CT of their head and the sinuses appeared, but the purpose was not to look for sinusitis. What's the prevalence of abnormalities in the sinuses? And people, that you're not even looking for trouble in the sinuses. Uh, and mucosal thickening is seen in up to 25% of people who are just getting a CT scan uh, to make sure they don't have a brain tumor or, or something like that. Uh, or they've just had a head trauma and they're getting a routine CT scan in the emergency department. So we don't want to overuse CT scans. A 23-year-old uh, medical student uh, presents to the University Health Services with a 14-day history of fever up to 104 for the last two days. Uh, the fever began 10 days ago after returning from a three-week stay in India. She developed non-bloody diarrhea the last five days associated with moderate abdominal cramping. She's otherwise healthy on no medications other than oral 
uh, over-the-counter uh, non-steroidals, which uh, temporarily and dramatically removed, uh, relieved her fever. She received her hepatitis A and B vaccines in the past. Uh, she came to our, uh, our uh, uh, health clinic. She was one of our medical students. She looked exhausted, so I couldn't differentiate her from any other medical student. No, she really looked exhausted. She was a very energetic person, and, and this, she looked terrible. Temperature was 103. Uh, mucous membranes were dry. She was dehydrated. She had a rash, which I'll show you in a second. She had mild, diffuse abdominal tenderness, uh, and she had a spleen tip. And one of the reasons I remember this case so well um, is uh, this, was the f uh, this was the first spleen tip she had ever felt. I said, you know, I can feel your spleen. And I said, here, put your... And she felt it. So this was her first spleen tip. And I said, don't overdo this, because uh, she was trying to get really good at feeling her spleen. I said, don't, don't, you know, uh, don't overdo this when you go home. Uh, anyhow, heart, lungs, and neurologic exam were normal. So here's that picture of her with this uh, chronic illness after traveling to India. Here's her rash, which I think you can see we circled it. Um, little red, a couple of red spots. There was another one up here that uh, was off, kind of off camera a little too much. Okay. Hemoglobin was 11. White count was 3.4. Uh, she had 12% lymphs and 8% monos. Um, platelets were okay, a little low. Lights, creatinine, glucose were normal. Transaminase is about two times normal. Total bilirubin was a uh, little uh, borderline high. Uh, urinalysis was normal. Uh, blood and stool cultures were sent. And she was given ciprofloxacin. We were worried about uh, a uh, uh, something. Uh, three days later, she was still febrile, uh, and blood and stool cultures were negative uh, in her. So what would you do next? Repeat the stool culture, repeat the blood culture, culture the urine, culture a punch biopsy of that rash, or culture her bone marrow. Uh, the plurality wanted to culture her bone marrow, and second was culture her uh, rash. Very good. If both are good. Uh, e is better, and I'll show you the data on that in a second. Uh, and the suspicion uh, should be with this uh, uh, person traveling to an endemic area with uh, diarrhea, high-grade fever. She had a relative bradycardia, if you go back. Her pulse was in the 90s and a temperature of 104. Uh, palpable spleen tip, reticulohepithelial enlargement. Should be typhoid fever. Uh, which uh, uh, eventually, is, it turned out, what, uh, uh, is, is what she had. Uh, here's the uh, risk factor, the, sorry, endemic areas for typhoid fever. And as you can see, I've shown you a lot of uh, global maps uh, over the last two days. Uh, typhoid fever is like everywhere. All of the green areas and the gray areas, the gray are the highest incidence uh, here. Uh, but there's typhoid fever pretty much everywhere except for northern North America uh, and Australia. Uh, so it's uh, still a very, very prevalent uh, illness, even though Salmonella, Salmonella enterica subspecies, typhi, only can infect humans. So it's an eradicatable disease. We really just don't have a good vaccine uh, against it, as I'll show you. It's one of the last slides. So um, uh, I showed you the map. It's got a fairly long incubation period, and there's a typical, there's a stepwise fever that occurs, 101 one day, 102 the next, 103, 104, with a relative bradycardia, which uh, I hope you noticed. Abdominal pain, those lesions that some of you wanted to biopsy are rose spots that can kind of come and go in a day. 
Uh, and there's usually only a handful of them. There's this platysplanomegaly because of reticulum and theolial uh, proliferation. And the pyrus patches can react to the organism as well and even cause a, a bleed, which is usually uh, in the ileum, which is most where the pyrus patches are. Here's uh, the key component of uh, answering this question correctly, uh, is that uh, the uh, diagnosis uh, is usually made by culturing the blood or the stool. Uh, uh, it starts out in the blood and then gets into the stool and then it, uh, gets into the urine later in the disease. But if you can't find the organism with those cultures, and we couldn't in this case, the highest yield is the bone marrow. It multiplies intracellularly in the reticulendothelial uh, area uh, in the bone marrow, uh, cells in the bone marrow. It's also in the liver, but the bone marrow biopsy is a little less invasive than a uh, liver biopsy, and so there aren't a lot of studies on looking at that. Antibiotic resistance, and then we'll finish up with treatment and prevention. Antibiotic resistance is most prevalent uh, in uh, uh, India and surrounding countries and in Southeast Asia, not too much uh, present uh, in uh, Mexico uh, and the Western world. And the first-line treatment is fluoroquinolones, um, and, and uh, that's what we continued to treat her with, uh, and her organism was sensitive to it. There's some alternative regimens that you can use for resistance. I doubt they'll give you a case of that. And just finishing up, prevention, and this is why it's still endemic throughout the world. There's an inactivated parenteral vaccine that's about 70% effective uh, that we can give to people who are going into high-risk environments. And the oral live vaccine has been a total bust, a total failure, uh, with only about 35% uh, efficacy. Uh, that's my uh, last slide, and I really appreciate your attention. Uh, enjoy the rest of the course. Thank you.